stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. You have tuned in to another episode of The Three Questions with Andy Richter. Although I don't know tuned in. I always want, like, do you really tune in? I guess you don't. You just sort of click on. So you've clicked on The Three Questions with Andy Richter. And my guest today is somebody I've known a while who's a very funny man, a very insightful man. Uh, and it's W. Kamal Bell, which I just found out through your screen name. It's Walter. Yes, yes, it is. It's, <laughs> I mean, I, I told Terry Gross, so I guess you can know too. All right, good. Oh, yeah, I know everything Terry Gross knows. Yeah, that's Almost what they everything. say. It's yeah, on your yeah, Wikipedia yeah. page. Were you, when growing up, were you Kamau or were you Walter? No, I was Kamau. I was yeah, always yeah. Kamau. My dad's name is Walter. And so, like, the only time my mom would call me Walter is if she wanted to make me angry because she knew how much she, she knew I knew how much she didn't like my dad. So, if she called me Walter, I was like, whoa. <laughs> She's Things projecting. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the, yeah. I have sort of, my brother has the same thing. His name was Lawrence August Richter. And uh, my dad was Larry. And yeah. he, they didn't want Larry Jr. So they, he's Gus. And then I'm Paul Andrew Richter and I'm Andy. So my mom, for some reason, with both me and my older brother, we got called by our middle names, which I think is like, it's, it's, for me, it was seemed like a very rural thing because I knew a bunch of kids that had a different name at home than mm-hmm. they did at school, you know, whether it was a nickname or a middle name. It seems like it's a Southern, like I think of it as a Southern thing, like, because everybody gets named after somebody else and then your middle name is the, is your name. Yeah, I think it is sort of a, I don't know if it's a small town thing or a Southern thing, but yeah, yeah. I, I associate that too, like. Because by the, at some point somebody's like the blah 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 the fifth. Well, you can't you've right, gone right. through all the different things. You have to be Bubba. I'm sorry, right. you have to be Bubba. <laughs> We've run out of options. Yeah, as to yeah. how to call you Cletus. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, um, I my mom. Or the, this is the story she told me that because I'm Paul Andrew and I'm named after an uncle of hers. She had an uncle Paul, but she didn't like him much, so she didn't mm. want to be reminded of him by calling me that every day. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, you could have named. You know, it. you could choose a different name. Yeah. <laughs> name I mean, I do believe that Robert. your middle name, your your if you your middle name should be usable. I think that people who yeah. have unusable middle names, I think, is not a great thing. So I do think no. your middle name should be something that. So, like for example, when you go to college and go, I got to start over. <laughs> you go, you yes. Can of, <laughs> you can go to a new name. Yeah. Or or that sounds good. All three together when you are a serial killer. 
Yes, that's you know. true. That's true. <laughs> you know, you need a Wayne in there. Yeah, uh, they are a Wayne or a Lee. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you were born though. You weren't born in the South, though, right? You were no, 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 no. I was born in Palo Alto, California. But I don't, I was the only, my mom was in grad school at Stanford and we were only there for, a few, I don't know, a few months. I don't remember it until we moved back to Indianapolis where she's from. Oh, okay. So were you in Indianapolis for long? Yeah, it's also about four, I guess. Four, yeah, four. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess at this age, not for long, but I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah. And then we moved to Boston and then we were there till I was about, I mean, yeah. When you say, where am I from? Like, it's just like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's Boston. But I would go to visit my dad every summer in Alabama, in Mobile, Alabama. So in some sense, I've probably spent the most of my, a lot of, the biggest portion of my life that hasn't been spent in the Bay Area has been spent in Alabama, probably. Because then yeah. I lived there for two and a half years because my mom moved to Chicago and I hated it. So I moved to be with my dad in Alabama, realized I made a mistake the first night I got there, but it was too late, stayed <laughs> for two and a half years, and then moved back to Chicago and then went to college in Philly and eventually got out to the West Coast. Why did it take so long for you to figure out, like, why, why? After you knew it was a mistake, were you there for two and a half years? Because you're I just was family thir- dynamic. Like 13, stuff. you can't be like, oops. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gotta, I mean, I just, I was an only, I'm an only child and it was just me and my mom. And so it was a very sort of like independent lifestyle. Uh, my wife's one of a, like, I'll say one of a lot of kids. She's one of four. And yeah. so her family travels in a pack and that's just how it is. Whereas with my, fa- with me and my mom, we lived in a house, like a two bedroom house and he'd be like, see it, it's wake up in the morning, see it dinner. And we would just be sort of doing our own things for the whole day. Yeah. And so when I moved to be with my dad, I had a stepsister, he was married. And suddenly I realized, oh no, I don't have the freedom I had. But it took me like two and a half years to figure out an exit strategy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what kind of kid were you uh, like in the early days? Were you a precocious kid? I mean, I would, it would be my guess. I mean, I don't, I, you know, I, I didn't think of myself that way. I, because I was with my mom so much, I definitely was a kid that was around adults more than most kids because she would just take me with her places. Yeah. But I wasn't like the kid who was like the cute kid who was showing off my vocabulary. I would just sort of be in the corner watching it all go down. And so I soaked up a lot. And then later I talked to my mom and she would be like, oh, okay. Like, you know, so I feel really lucky that I was just dragged around to a lot of places. Like, I feel like with my kids, it's important to take them to boring things. Yeah. Like just to sort of like, just like it, it's not for you. Nobody's there going to be taking care of you, but you need to be around boring adult things because it actually grows you up and makes you smarter. Yeah. I I try and do that with my kids, but there's no, I just, there, there's no giving them the same kind of boring Midwestern existence that I had because they're just LA kids. <laughs> yeah, you can't You know do what that. I mean? <laughs> and I, and I, and I'm, I'm always torn by, like, uh, I mean, yeah, they know how to cook and they kind of yeah. know how to clean, but they're just yeah. really shitty at it. And yeah. I don't have, yes, yes, I don't have my mother's like screaming persistence. Like, mm-hmm. if, like if they do a shitty job, you know, cleaning the bathroom or something. Yeah, like I'm yeah. not, you know, occasionally I'll be like, come on back in and do it. But most yeah. of the time, yeah. I'm like, oh fuck it, <laughs> energy to yell at them about this stuff. It's funny to me the number of times I say to my kids, just be cool. <laughs> just be cool. <laughs> like, like, and, I, and literally, I mean, like, just do the thing I'm asking you to do. And, yeah, and sort yeah. of, I sort of act like the middle manager. I don't even care if you do this, but it right. just needs to be like, like it's, it's like, it's, it's my manager who wants you to do. I don't yes. care. Yes. Like, like I've just, had so many, I've had so many things with my son, like, you know, like 
walking into his room. He's 19 now. And walking into his room and like there's a the the mail at our old house goes in through his bedroom. Like his mm. bedroom is in the front of the house and it's an old house. Oh, yeah. and it has a mail slot and you have yeah. to go into his room, but just into the door, <laughs> make a quick left and get the mail. Yeah. I go into his room just to get the mail. And he's asleep in the bed, and I turn, and there's a huge bag of weed right in front of where I get the mail. And I was like, I woke him up, and I was like, just act like you're a little bit concerned. Exactly. Just act like you think I'm a bit of a badass. <laughs> that you that that things get that I don't want to get caught. That my yeah. dad might actually. Yeah, yeah. That I have a gear that you don't want to see me access. Right. That I have yeah. teeth. That yeah. I have actual <laughs> teeth. That, that you're worried like, about. But there's consequences. Just he won't mind. Oh, yeah. he won't. Who cares? I'll just leave his big bag of weed yeah, here. Because yeah, yeah. ultimately, I don't care. But no. You know. But you want to feel like you want to. You want to because I feel like that. I think the fear is that if your kid feels like there's no consequences with you, then they think there's no consequences in the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's the reason why a lot of times I feel like you have to create consequences at home, just so the idea that like they understand there are consequences. Yes, yes. Like I, I really want both of my children to get a shitty mundane job so they can get used to the notion that there will be times in your life when somebody that seems like a complete fucking idiot gets to tell you what to do because you're making a paycheck. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And like, that's, it sucks. It sucks. And it just is like, but it's like, as long as capitalism is is the system, that's going to happen. You got to get used to it. You got to get used to like, yeah, sometimes it's just a job. Yeah. That somebody who you're smarter than is going to be in a position to tell you what to do. Yes. And you're going to, and you know, and you're going to have to be bored to make a paycheck. You're going to have to like, not everything is kind of catered to your interest and everything, which I think, like, I think kids, parents are much more engaged than they used to be. And they think about like, am I doing a good job as a parent? Wait, very much more than they used to. I think at least in my estimation, but I do think that it ends up with kids feeling like, like they need to be entertained or mm-hmm. stimulated at all mm-hmm. times. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I I wasn't. I had to make yeah. shit up on my own, you know? No, I mean, I remember, like, I used to say with my grandmother in Alabama in the summer. And there would be, like, it would be either two, like, three things I think I could remember. Like, watching TV, which meant watching whatever she wanted to watch. Which yeah. means I was all caught up on Days of Our Lives, yeah, Another so World, yeah. Santa Barbara. Price is Right and whatever game show was in that slot after the yeah, Price is yeah. Right. And then in the afternoon, I could watch cartoons or just going outside. And that literally just meant just going outside. Yeah. Like there was no, there wasn't a swing set. No. <laughs> there, was, there was a dog, <laughs> but the dog didn't care about me. You know, the dog was doing his own thing. It just meant going outside and just getting into something. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, and so with my kids, we have a little bit of a side yard, but they will go outside and be like, what do I do? And I was like, I... I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. yeah just just, yeah, I, yeah. just be outside. That's all I need yeah. you to do. I just need yeah. you to be outside. <laughs> do something on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you, I mean, were you kind of a loner as a kid then? It sounds, I mean, that kind of sounds like. I mean, I was, de- I didn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have thought of myself as a loner. I was a quiet loner. Everybody said he was a quiet loner. Yeah. Yeah. He was a good neighbor. Didn't yeah. cause much trouble. I was definitely, because I moved around a lot, I like, I feel like I always kept myself company well. Like, so I wasn't, 
I don't. I wasn't lonely as an only child. I hear about lonely only children who are like, I wish I had a brother. I never yeah. had any wish of a sibling. When I had a step sibling, I was like, ugh. Now we got to talk about what to watch for TV. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, just, yeah, you know. yeah. So, but then I, you know, I and then I always had a. I've always had a small group of friends. I was never like I have fifteen friends. I had like 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 one or two best friends, and that was it. So yeah. you know, and then there would be times where if I didn't find one or two best friends, I'd be like, well, I guess I'm just doing. I mean changing schools a lot was hard because there was always a thing about where do I fit in here? So that was the hardest thing about moving a lot was like sort of showing up at a new school and being like, who do they think I am? Yeah. <laughs> which, which, which table am I supposed to sit at at lunch? You know? Uh, right. And it was also lots of different types of schools, Catholic schools, private schools, public schools, which is a lot of different culture shifts. But, uh, and then sometimes I would be like, I don't think I have no, which table I sit at. So I'll sit over here by myself. And, but yeah, there was just, yeah. Overall, it was fine. But yeah, they were certainly moving around to like with my kids, our oldest kid, because of like when she was born, I lived in San Francisco, got my first TV job. We moved to New York. Then we moved around New York a lot. And then we moved back here. So she's lived in like 10 different places. Yeah. But with my youngest kid, who's two, she's lived in one house. And I feel like <clears throat> let's try to keep that consistent for you. Yeah. Like, like, you yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, let's try to keep you in one place. With one, and then we thought going to one school with one group of friends, and then the pandemic hit. Yay! Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, it's. I, I think that there is the, the consistency for a kid, especially, is is optimal. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's tough, and uh, and you you are a self described blurred. Yes. Um, which, for <laughs> those who don't know, is well, it's funny. Somebody called me that. When I had my first TV gig, they said, come out, this is a blurred. And I was like, wait, what is that? And then I sort of, and it was a black nerd. I was like, yeah, sure. Is that yeah. what this is? <laughs> <laughs> like when I was a kid, there was no thing for you. You were just a weirdo or uncool or the kid who didn't listen to hip hop. There was not really a, a, uh, a thing for it. Yeah. And now yeah. it's like, oh, it's a blurred because I listened to, uh, rock and roll and I like, uh, comic books. Okay, sure. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Was that tough? I mean, were there kids, you know, coming up and, you know, going to different places and then, like, it's not like you go to a different school and they find out that you're, like, an excellent quarterback. It's that they find out yes. you know who all the X-Men are. <laughs> it's a different thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Or even worse, I the thing for me that was hard is I was a comedy nerd before that was a thing. Oh, So right. nobody yeah, cares yeah. that you know who the new hot up-and-coming comedians are. Yes, yes. Or that you Have can you... quote old yeah. SCTV sketches. Yeah. No, yeah. Have you seen Jan Karam's new spot on the Young Comedian special? <laughs> <laughs> like, I think no. she's really got... Yeah, exactly. So this young Dennis Miller, I think he's really got a future for me. <laughs> like, this, like nobody... There was no way to talk about that back then. So I think that was... I definitely felt like around... I had to... I should keep my mouth shut. It was like two things I was interested in. Comedy and martial arts and Bruce Lee. Like that. So... And none of those things had any... I think those things have a lot more cachet now, but at that point they had zero. Yeah, yeah. And it's certainly, well, and they're not like really applicable to your life as a child. I guess comedy kind of is, but. But there was no people, again, all these things have been categorized now in a way they weren't categorized before. Yeah, yeah. So there wasn't like now probably every high school has the the comedians club or whatever or the, you know. The whatever the there's, you know, things that you can sort of plug into or you can go home online and find other kids around the country who are interested. Yeah. But for me, it was just like 
I think I'm the only Bruce Lee fan in the world. That is so <laughs> weird because he was so famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just nobody cares anymore except for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that is true because and, – and it has – you know, like all the the recent things about various male stand-ups kind of grooming underage fans mm-hmm. for abuse. Like, that is such a new internet-specific mm-hmm. thing. Because what the hell would 16... How would 16-year-olds have known who... I'm- any any of these standups, these predatory standups are 20 years ago, you know? I mean, I think certainly there was like... A culture of those things that like you can read about, like every now and again, you'll like, I remember there was one of the guys from the Rolling Stones who like married a 16 year old or something like it was. Well, there's definitely there's like Aerosmith did that, that, you know, like Aerosmith, some parents signed over like. Yeah, legal rights. Yeah, legal like guardianship. Legal guardianship. Yeah. to Steven Tyler for their daughter, so he yeah. could take her on tour. Yeah, that, I mean that's like so that existed, but it certainly was not as easy to get stuck. It yes. was like you had to show up at the show. Yeah, you had to go to a lot of shows. You had to wait backstage. Yeah. You had to wait by the by the bus in the cold. You right. had to like really, you know, it wasn't. Whereas now it can all happen with a few clicks. That's the thing that I think is like. You know that is really scary about it. It is. It is all just a few sort of like. Bup, 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 you know. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. No, that's know. the kind of. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, the internet's great and it's really opened things up, but it's also like oh, a whole new terrifying list of dangers that you have yes. to worry about. You know, <laughs> one of the things they teach at my daughter's school that when we first went, to my daughter's, I guess, but when my oldest daughter went there, was just the idea of like digital citizenship. Like, it's not about the app you're on. It's about how you should be on the internet. And I was like, this is what we all missed. Yeah, like, yeah. Digital citizenship. Like, I yep. think like I think that even when I see comedians get dragged for tweets, forget, like, grooming, awful, you're wrong, you're, 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 you're all done. Yeah. Uh, but, like, when I see comedians get dragged from tweets, say, before 2011, I'm like, none of us knew. Yeah. Like, I remember Twitter was pitched to me as, like, it's like an open mic. You can say whatever you want to say. Yeah. And so people were just out there, like, trying to get attention. Yep. And so I'm not saying, I'm not apologizing for anybody's tweets, but I do feel like the culture shifted in a dramatic way. The minute Twitter went from a thing where it was just like, just go out there and make a nuisance of yourself to, uh, wait, you can make money from this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I have a brand? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, I should delete those things that don't support the brand. Yeah. And so I do have an empathy for comedians who get dragged for tweets from even comedians I don't like or don't agree with the tweet. Yeah. If it's something you said a long time ago, that there's not a history of you continuing along that thinking. Right. I was like, right. You, were just, you were shouting into the wind and then the wind started blowing back in your direction. And also, I mean, and this isn't to make certainly isn't to make excuses for awful things, but t- comedians talk a lot of shit they say a lot of awful shit mm. like to get a, a mm-hmm. rise out of people like the jokes that i make mm-hmm. to people in private would curl the hair of yes. everyone you know because yeah. it's just we're very dark mm-hmm. cynical yeah, mean and, people you know and for sure comedy clubs and comedy spaces are not places of great that lead to great maturity no no, <laughs> or again. yeah, or justice, or you know, no, or, thought or, or inclusivity, or yeah. and I think a lot of the alt comedy scene was about like we need to make this a more inclusive space, but even that was not as inclusive as it thought it was. No, no it and wasn't. so <laughs> just like we we need different white guys to be in charge over here. 
Uh, but I, but again, so it, it invites you to be, I think, the, and this is crime is crime, awful is awful, but there is a culture of inviting you to not be your most mature self. Yes. And to be rewarded for it. And also, and, there was, there's an education. I was educated by Twitter. Mm-hmm. I, there were, I'm, you know, whenever Twitter, I don't know how long I've been on Twitter. I don't even really want to know. But I mean, but it was <laughs> over 10 years ago. Yeah. And it it was, you know, at that point, I'm a 43-year-old white man who's been mm-hmm. working in television comedy, yeah. well-paid in a privileged position. Yeah. So there's jokes and things that I made back then that I realized yeah. very quickly online, oh, I can't say that. Yes. And not like, yes. and, and my initial reaction at times was, hey, I'm a comedian. I can say whatever I want. Yep. And then- you get past that initial defensiveness and you're like, oh, no, this just hurts somebody. Or this mm-hmm. is like a perpetuation of something that's pretty fucking evil. Yeah. I mean, and not that I was like throwing around the N-word or anything. I just, yeah. you know, like would make a couple of, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, dark jokes. And people there are, like, are hey, that's not funny. Like There are you know jokes that, right. ex- that exist in the world that I recorded on albums and put out on TV that I'm like, that in my book i actually wrote it one of the chapters was an apology for a joke i wrote that's that's that i did on comedy central because i was just like because the joke had come back to haunt me even before like i feel like i got pre-canceled like i was like (laughs) before canceling was canceling people were like that joke is awful and i was like what do you mean that and so and then finally a friend of mine sent me and i was like no this joke is awful i'm like and I, yeah, you're right. And so, yeah. like, a part of my book was about apologizing for that one joke because I look back on it and just, even now I got goosebumps thinking about it. This was awful. It was just, and I thought it was smart and edgy and political, and it was just awful. What was the topic of it? I mean, you know, I was going to say, I was going to tell the joke. Yeah, so yeah. Let me do it. Let me do it for you. I got to do it right. Let me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to do the joke, but I mean, no, what, I know. I'm just kidding. Was it's it funny? I want to do it. Yeah. Uh, no, was no. it sexist? Was it racist? It was, was, it was sex. It was sexist. And I also, Racist in a way that people don't think about. It was about Condoleezza Rice, and just the way I talked about her was certainly from oh, a I sexist, see. misogynistic uh, perspective, and racist in a way that, like, of all the people you got to criticize, black man, you criticize this black woman. Yeah, and yeah. I think there's like a part of the joke that is political that you can like excise and go, "That's the part. That's the joke." Right. But that's the way you should go with it if you want to criticize this person. Yeah. But it, but because it's stand-up comedy, there's an invitation. To like when you're in the, like the club, a comedy club at night, you're at night, people are drinking and you're sort of and those are, you know, <laughs> those are not the uh, the most woke people in the comedy. Club. Yes. Yeah. And so you're sort of entertaining the people who are there. And there's an invitation to sort of like make them go, whoa, like the one of the great things that can, especially when you're a young comedian is to make an audience go, whoa, yikes. Yeah. That's even because the laugh becomes the boring after a while. Yeah, yeah. So for some of us, it's like, how can I, how can I push their buttons? And then you just start pushing random buttons. <laughs> like you just start, like, like, yeah, just start yeah. like, oh, did that work? Then I'll keep pushing that button, and you never go. And a lot of times, you don't go. Is this the right button? Should I be doing this? It's just I like know, it's I working. Know. It's yeah. working. And, and also and, too, yeah. like when you do bits that are sort of ironically awful, like I mm-hmm. did. I just had this thing that I used to do sometimes when I'd be invited to do stuff. And it was like, I was just assuming, like I was reading something as if I was an awful person, you know, Mm -hmm. like I was playing a version of myself, but like, you know, like just a showbiz time. Like the, like the the nutty, nutty professor version of yourself. Yes, exactly. And, uh, 
And I remember I did, I did like some, like I was doing a bit in Vancouver and I like, I mean, I, in this bit, I, I was like saying I did the most depraved, mm-hmm. vicious like things to be like in a very offhand kind of way. And that's not the point of the bit. But at one point, like to set up near the end of the bit, I, <laughs> the thing is like, I was at a Republican fundraiser is the, <laughs> is the setup to it, you yes, know, like, yes. because I needed to get like. I needed to get, I needed to get uh you know John McCain and Sarah Palin there you know like yeah. for the for the joke yeah said so I met a Republican fundraiser and the audience booed <sighs> and I was just like with all the shit that I just said <laughs> about like stuff I did to people yep, yep. ways I violated family members mm-hmm. you're gonna go like boo you went yes. to a Repub- I'm like. All right. Now, I mean, now you're making it political. Yeah, it's yeah. like okay. I guess I know where your line is, audience. Yeah. You know, and I think the for me the thing became clear that like it's okay to push buttons and cross lines, but for me it's about making sure that the buttons like picking like picking your targets. Yeah. Like so, there's a and I I, I still like that laugh. It's like whoa, yikes! But yeah. making sure that I can go. That's right. That's what I said. Like, I, I, I support this joke. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think some comedians and that's why I'm not advocating for comedians being not doing that. Like, you know, I always look at things about somebody like Jim Norton or uh, Anthony Jeselnik. Those guys have very good careers that are doing well because they just sort of go. This is what I do. Yeah. If you're going to walk through the door, this is what you're going to get. And, yeah. Yeah. And Jeselnik, it would it would take some sort of crime for him to get canceled because you can't cancel him for what he said. Right. Yeah, because he said the most cancelable things. Yeah, and he's, and he's sort of saying that's what this is. And I think, yeah, yeah, I feel like there's room for people. Just like you can have a, just like you can have a band that you don't that you wouldn't vote for for president. You can have a comedian you wouldn't yeah, vote for yeah. for president. Now you shouldn't have a president you wouldn't vote for for president. Right. That's not to, to get political, <laughs> but <laughs> but I do think there's room for those kind of for comedians who do that. I think one of the problems I see is that it's just that we're all in everybody's business all the time now. Yeah, yeah. And so I remember there was uh, Artie Lang, somebody, I remember early days of Twitter, somebody said they were at the restaurant that the comedy seller was at, and they and to go to the bathroom, you have to, so you could just be eating at the restaurant, the comedy seller, not even at the comedy club. Yeah. But I think to go to the bathroom, you actually can walk past the club. Yeah. And they heard Artie Lang on stage saying something and got offended by that. And it's like, look. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You can't cherry pick one line. I just it just feels like that's the people who paid for it are in that room for him to do that thing, you know. Yeah, and if yeah, they yeah. don't like it, that's a different, you know, that's a different thing. But to me, it felt like you weren't even at the show. <laughs> like, like, I happen to hear, yeah, yeah. And I don't think I'm not trying to get rid of as much as I people think I'm whatever woke or whatever. I'm not trying to get rid of all comedians I don't agree with. Yeah, I'm trying to get rid of all all political policies I don't agree with and people who commit crimes. Those are yeah. the two things. Like <laughs> right, those. right. And sometimes comedians blend into those areas as we've, as we've discussed. Well, I, you know, two thoughts about that. One is, yeah, they're like, Anthony Jeselnik is really funny, mm-hmm. but I don't, but I am, one thing that amazes me about him is how do you live in that space? Yes. You know, like how is that becomes the, like, it's like, you know, go into a business where you, I don't know, kill cats. 
or something. You know, <laughs> like my business is I murder cats. You know, it's just like, yeah. okay, that's what you do. But it's like, doesn't that feel weird? Like, don't you, aren't there days when you wish you didn't have to kill a cat? You know, I mean, I would imagine there have to be because there's days when I, when I go on stage and I kind of want to be a little Anthony Jesselnik. You know what I mean? So, like, <laughs> like not, I would imagine there's days where every comic, every comic has a day where they got to sort of put that act on and go, here we go again. Yeah, you know, yeah. so I would imagine those things have to exist because they, I mean, you know, I would imagine that there's days when Jeff Dunham goes, but do I need to pull out the puppets? Can I just talk? <laughs> like, can't, we, like can't this be about feelings for once? Yeah, everybody's act gets tiresome sometimes. So I think yeah, that, yeah. That, but yeah, I definitely think that we all have to sort of like make that agreement with ourselves that this is the thing I want to do. Yeah. But I, I would be, I, a little bit, I always am like, when comic when comics don't evolve over time, that's the thing I think I get shocked by because I think it wears differently depending on how old you are and what you're doing. Like to me, Bill Burr having a kid means things evolve. You know what I mean? Right, right, like, right. Just, like, right. Just sort of like your levels of things you care about are different. So yeah, you know, I think so. I don't know. I think it, you can all it, it it all evolves over time if you allow it to. But yeah, yeah I, don't, I definitely. You know, it would be interesting. You know, maybe it gets maybe it gets more Anthony Jeselnik as he gets to be like eighty five years old. Right. <laughs> well, and the reason the reason that Jeselnik gets away with it, or you know, or is successful with it, if you want, is because he's good. He's funny, and that's what a lot of these. You know, a lot of this stuff through time, when there's been somebody who's been can't like a comedian who's been canceled or comedian, you know, and some of them have kind of been pushed into the wilderness or into like right wing blogging. I mean, that Mm -hmm. seems to be a very natural flow. Yes. But the main thing that I always feel is it's not, it's kind of boring. Like you hear the same bro-y sort of perspective Mm -hmm. about, you know, men are somehow more rational than women or Mm whatever, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. It's just boring. It's just like, it's not funny. You know, I mean, I feel like that's it's like I feel like same way about music. Like there's some music that's not for me, but doesn't mean it shouldn't be out there in the world. And I feel like I just feel like to me, the problem becomes like this is the thing I think is funny. Like there's often often those comics who were sort of and I wouldn't put Jessica in this category, but are putting in this sort of like bro-y category will often criticize comedians, maybe like me, but comedians who are trying to do it a different way but then don't want to be criticized on their end. And I'm just like, look, you do your thing. You do your thing, man. I'll do my thing. We don't actually need to deal with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm, I, you know, I think there's a point in which every comic becomes like a little bit sheriff of comedy. And I think it's Mm -hmm. a natural evolution of being a comedian. Like when you feel like I got my comedy black belt. Now I get to tell you what to do, Uh but you should move through that. And then just be like, we're all out here making a living. There's things I thought about people that I wrote about people years ago that I'm not like, I'm not this there. For me, there's bigger battles to fight. Yeah. Yeah. Then like, and so when I see people getting dragged for tweets, I'm just like, you know, I, I, I just, to me, it's like, to me, it's only worth it if you're like, is this really who this person is? Right. Right. You know, or but, is it exposing a pattern of real life behavior that is yes, harmful yeah. or something like that? Yeah. yeah. And I think that if, that if, if, if that's not the case, I just feel like I, I, and some people think that's their job is to drag people on Twitter. And I think for me, it's like, I, I, I'm trying to drag the president. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which doesn't which doesn't work. He yeah. you can't cancel him, but yeah, that's that's where I put my dragging <laughs> in. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, dragging people on Twitter, that's another one where I'm like, that's what you want to do with your time? Like to be a shit poster? Boy, okay. 
I mean, I, th- I think for some people, like it is kind of their job, like it is their brand, and I think yeah. that maybe it feeds. I mean, and I have certainly have gone. I've certainly been like, like with like like commented on people and like, what what are you doing? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. so I'm not trying yeah, to say. Yeah. But I think when I spend too much time doing that, you feel like, wait, that's just, this is not actually my job. This is yes, not actually. Exactly. And guess what I'm doing? Avoiding doing the things I need to do. <laughs> well, you know, I think too. It's also comedians. They. There's, it's not, especially you know, like stand-up comedians. It's not a coincidence that their job is standing in front of a room of people who are sitting in the dark, mm-hmm. and literally the only lights are facing them, mm-hmm. and it's expected that the entire room shut up and listen to them. Yeah, it's not, it's not surprising that those people will then be opinionated once they become situated. You know yes, what I mean? yes, and that the thing and the things we used to write down in our notebook and let sit for a while, then take on stage and say and see how it works. We're now just sitting out on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And it's not surprising that some of those things is like, Mm-mm, nope, yeah. that's not, yeah, that's not. <laughs> Should have put Tone that of voice back. is important. Yes, yes. <laughs> a knowing glance where I know you're being ironic is important. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, did, um, did you, what was your high school? Were you in one place for high school or did you have to move around there? Uh, high school, I was in, I'm trying to, I was in, I went to high school. I started out high school in Alabama for a year. Then I moved to Chicago and stayed there for the finished high school in Chicago. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So I was for three years. So yeah. when you is Alabama now? Were you in town in Alabama, or were you out in the in the country in Alabama? No, I was in Mobile. I mean, it's, it's Alabama, so there's not. Like, no, I know, but I mean, yeah, but there is no, a no, difference. No, but no, you know? no, I understand. What you're but uh, I was in Mobile, Alabama, which is the third largest city in Alabama. I'll have yeah, you know. yeah. So it's three hundred thousand. It's <laughs> the yeah, capital. Three hundred thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's three hundred thousand people, which is but it's so. And it's a big city in Alabama, but it feels very different from coming from Chicago or sure. Boston, where I was coming from. So it, it, there's definitely there would always be an adjustment to go there and sort of like go, okay, think like when I went there with my wife years later, I just had fun looking at her, looking at Mobile, yeah, like yeah. just sort of sitting in a car. My dad was driving, I was looking at her. She was just like, whoa, because she comes from like Monterey, California, which is like Shakespeare would have written about Monterey. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, so were you funny in high school? Like, did you, is that where you start kind of? I mean, I, I was, I, whatever I am, I always was, but I don't yeah. think I was the, I was not the class clown. Yeah. So I feel very much like I was, so I was funny with my friends, but I liked comedy and wanted to do comedy in my, but I felt like me and all my friends were funny. I was just the one who was like, really like, like obsessed with it. Uh, and yeah. it wasn't until I got to college and I decided I went to college for a year and a half. And when I decided to drop out, and I relaxed. I like still had a few more like weeks to stay. I don't know what it was, but I didn't leave right away. And I was there for a few more weeks. And once I knew I was dropping out, I stopped going to classes. And I would hang out with my friends and be completely relaxed. And I suddenly I realized I had become the funny guy. Like everybody was always looking at me. And like, and people would introduce me like, this is Kamau. He's hilarious. Like that was part of my like intro to new people. And I was like, Oh, am I that guy now? Yeah, yeah. And that was a, a guy. His name was Seth, and I don't, I don't I haven't seen him since college. Said, "Have you ever thought about becoming a stand-up comic?" And I was just like, "I don't know, man. Why would I?" And inside, I'm like, "Yay!" <laughs> <laughs> so someone said it. Yeah, someone. That's the point at which I, I always felt like I was funny, but I didn't. Nobody was telling me I was, other than my close friends. But this was the, just at a point where I was like able to walk into a room of people and just be funny. Yeah. You know, people I didn't know and people sort of expected it of me and it didn't like scare me. Like I was just like, yeah, I'm funny, you know. So Right. Yeah. Now while all this is going on with your friends, what are you telling your parents? What are your plans when you're <laughs> dropping it? Like cuz you yeah. don't drop out of college and go, "Well, I'm just going to check it out, maybe stand up," you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I like to sort of go back to where we started with the Walter thing. So I was, I went back to Chicago. My mom has always been sort of like, you'll figure it out, you know, and if you don't want to be there, don't stay. Like she, she was very sort of practical about it. And like, you're not, it, you're not dropping out of college because you can't do it. You're dropping out of college because you don't want to do it. Yeah. She yeah. understood that. Like it was like a, and she, I talked, I talked her through it. So she was fine with it. My dad, like this got black man, Mobile, Alabama, took him like he didn't get through college till he was like in his forties. Like it just took him. He like dropped. He dropped out and went back and dropped back, and then he got like became like a titan of industry. And I was going to the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school, and he was just sort of like his whole vibe was like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" <laughs> like, you right, like, right. If you just get through this school, your whole life is assured. Yeah, you you're just, being given the keys to the kingdom, and you're yeah eschewing them yeah 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 if you just get through an ivy league school as a you'll be it doesn't matter what your degree is in <laughs> you just like just get a degree yeah. from an ivy league school and you'll be fine but you were just like then you, you were yeah. just done i was just done like i i picked the wrong school ultimately is what it comes down to like i if because penn is an ivy league school which means it's not really like a liberal arts school i i think if i'd gone to like some sort of like not generic but like a state school that just sort of has everything yeah or yeah. Or if I or Oberlin, who are just like yeah, where, yeah. Where everybody's their own unique flower. Yeah. I think I would have like found a way to stay. But when I realized I don't want to be a business person or a nurse, uh, or and that's basically what Penn is good at. Like turning yeah, up, yeah. You know? And uh I don't think there's anything for I don't have a pre professional job that I'm looking to get. No, I know. So so I was just like, I think I gotta go. Like I just I can't I remember looking through like the all the class, like the big class thing that used to, I don't know if they still, they probably don't make them anymore, but it was like this big book of all the classes in the school. I just remember flipping through it, like, what class would I take if I stayed? And there was nothing, because they just didn't have a, they they didn't have like a big liberal arts bent. Like, I should have just sort of like found a, you know. A, just transferred, one of those, yeah. Just, tra- yeah, one of those schools where you don't get grades, you get feelings, you know, I would have been better there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sarah Lawrence is right up your alley. Exactly, yeah, something like that. And I, just, and I don't, and at that point, I was also just sort of like, so I didn't even think to transfer. It was just like, I got to get out. I, I have a real, one of my vibes that I've taken with me through my life is like, I got to get the fuck out of here. It's just yeah. a very sort of like me thing to feel like. I just got to get the fuck out of here, regroup, and then figure it out. Yeah. So it was back to Chicago for that? Back to Chicago. And then I yeah. like moved back to Chicago right when like, I think the the LA riots, the Rodney King LA riots were happening. So uh-huh. I remember like being in bed watching the riots on TV. <laughs> like just like <laughs> kind of like right now is how it feels. Like the world is falling yeah. apart. Yeah. And here and I, I am stuck at home. Yeah. Here I am stuck at home. And my mom basically said at some point, okay, you have to get a job. I don't care what it is, just get a job. And I signed you up for classes at Second City in Chicago. Second City. Because oh, wow. she was like, you always want you always love Saturday Night Live. You've always wanted to be a comedian. Is, this is the th- only thing I know to do to support that is sign you up for Second City class. What a good so, mom! Really, yeah, no, seriously. Yeah, That's no, she, amazing. she, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and it's sort of like just so getting a job and that sort of got me like out of bed. And I knew I was only doing Second City to get the confidence up to do stand up. So yeah, I took, I went through the whole program. Actually, it's funny. I, I know he doesn't remember. Steve Carell was my director of my Level Five show. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, so it was like Steve Carell, who at that point was like. They thought he was like the next Alec Baldwin, <laughs> like you know, like he's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the good-looking guy at Second City, uh, and uh, and I did the Second City classes and started doing stand-up, and then slowly worked my way through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard, like when you're in college, because I definitely, 
I definitely. Well, I mean, I ended up going to film school, so like I figured it out. Kind, I kind of did what you did, but I did it sort of halfway, and then mm-hmm. figured out like I did that thing where I I transferred. Yeah, but I definitely remember just feeling like, and especially even after I got out of college, and a lot of the work I because I worked in film production, a lot of it was uh, commercials and was advertising, mm-hmm. and working freelance in film production. It's not, it's nerve wracking. You know yeah. I mean? I mean, I think the first year I did it, I made like 14 grand and yep. you never know where the next job is coming. <laughs> and then when you do get a job, you're, it's 16 to 18 hours a day. So you're, you know, you have this like life where you like live basically on an offshore oil rig, except yep. it's a Montgomery Wards commercial, you know? <laughs> and even the little experience that I would have kind of in the advertising, which to me seemed like the most logical place for me to go if I was to go like legit and, you know, Mm -hmm. not, not, you know, just to kind of get a job. I just realized I can't, I would, I, I'm going to be an obese alcoholic, you know, more so than I am now. Um, If I like, I just cannot handle this office atmosphere. I cannot handle this structure. I can't Mm -hmm. handle like, you know, I'm I'm I've been a kid that like was always like nervous about getting in trouble, but yeah. I fucking hate authority. Like, don't yep. tell me what to do. Because no. <laughs> I'm not. Because especially too, when you're like not a rule breaker, you're like, why are you on my case? I'm not. Yes. You leave me alone. I'll be fine. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I'm not gonna <laughs> fuck shit up. Just yeah. leave me alone. You know? I just I just want to still I just want to still be here tomorrow. I don't. Really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not trying, to, I'm not trying yeah. to avoid. I'm not trying to I'm trying to avoid trouble. Yeah. 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 Now, is it hard for you when you start out? I mean, are you nervous? Are you scared? Or does your mom yeah, I mean, kind of root you enough? You know, or no? I mean, like, so I I, I started it in like I went to an op- open mics in Chicago for about a month or one open mic. My best friend, the guy I met in high school, Jason, uh, one of my small group of friends, like he said, there was an open comedy open mic comedy night in his neighborhood at a coffee shop, and so I just went for a month. We went together and just watched. And I've, if the greatest thing happened, the first night I went, it was so bad. I was like, well, I can be this bad. Yeah, yeah. Like, and then I watched for a month and then eventually started going up. And the thing about starting comedy is it's pretty fun because you you sort of fall into a scene of people. Yeah. Like, there's sort of like, there's sort of like, you automatically, that's the funny guy. That's the guy who writes, but he always bombs. You know, that's the, this is the, this is the woman who's funnier than all of us, but she doesn't do, but she doesn't want to go do one nighter. So, you know, like, yeah, yeah, whole, yeah. Like, uh, you know, and so you, so you, I, it was like the first time I had like a crew. It was like, you know, sort of like, yeah, it yeah. was really fun. I mean, I wasn't that funny, but it was really fun. It took me years. And one of the reasons I moved out of Chicago is because I felt like the scene wasn't really, there wasn't enough opportunity to get better in Chicago. This, the comedy club. So I started basically when the boom had crashed against the shore. Uh huh. And so there just wasn't, all the clubs were closing and the alt scene hadn't really kicked in yet in Chicago, especially. So yeah, there just Chicago, wasn't a lot of there wasn't such a thing for a no. long, long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just wasn't. It was sort of like you do three shows a week, you know? <laughs> and if two of them were bad, you want to kill yourself. Like yeah, it's just like yeah. you know. So and it just sort of was not. I like the third. So when I'd done comedy three years, I felt like the third year I'd repeated a year. Like I was like, I didn't get any better this year. I didn't make money. I didn't. I don't have a new act, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I started like looking for places to move. And I visited a friend of mine in New York, and I was like, "This is too much. I love it here, but I can't take it." It is, and then a lot. I came to yeah, and I came to San Francisco, and weirdly, like coming to San, I had like you know nobody knew me. I had no credits, but I went to 
the showcase night at Cobb's Comedy Club. Gene Pompa was there. Do you know Gene? Sure. Yeah. And he was and I and I sort of I was like, that guy's famous. He was on the A list. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's really fucking funny. He's and super really funny good. and super yeah. cool. Yeah. And so I went up and said to him afterwards, like, all like, you're famous because you were on the A list on Comedy Central. And he laughed and he was like, well, I was like, I'm a comedian from Chicago. And Gene, I don't know why, gave me the number of the punchline comedy club to call and say, tell them I said you should get a guest set. So I called, I got a guest set on a show that was like like a sold-out Saturday night show. It's the kind of thing that just doesn't happen. Like, you don't get a guest yeah, set yeah. on a Saturday night show. And I had like half an act, but because it was Saturday night first show, I, I had a great set. And I walked off stage like, I'm moving here because I will take over the city. And so I moved to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. And then it's was like not funny in, for it, seven years. <laughs> yeah, but you got that initial, you know. Yeah. It's no, like a, it was, really, a really good first date with a terrible relationship, you know? Yes, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, so that, that was sort of what swung the thing for me to move to San Francisco. It was just like, hap- and it, I always look back and like, none of that made sense. Like, I ended up, and the guy who booked me, Jeff Wills, is like the biggest comedy promoter in the country now. And, I, and he like booked me to do, and so I've always known Jeff forever, which has always helped me. So it's like this weird, like, he was sort of in the early stages of his career and now he's Jeff. Now he's Dave Chappelle's promoter, but like I've known him for over twenty years. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are are you making a living just doing stand up at this point when you move? I mean, no, no. Yeah, no, that's I, had, I wouldn't think. No, yeah. No, 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 no. Because no, there was again, this was the like we would hear like when the club would close at night at the punchline and the comics would hang out. You'd hear all the comics who had been around in the eighties be like, they used to, they like there used to be fourteen full time clubs in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you didn't have to leave town. Yeah, you just travel, and every you just travel. Every club was a different market, basically. Yeah, and so you so comics could just make a living just traveling around San Francisco, not even leaving the four one five or five one zero area code, and that was gone. And so it was just like one nighters that everybody was clawing at to get to a room that sucked. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, like, you know. To, and so I wasn't close to making a living. I was. I always had all sorts of different retail style day jobs. Yeah, just to sort of, and I was also really like even at that point, like hadn't figured out what my act was. So even if I got, even if somebody booked me for something, there was no sense if I would do well or not. Like, there yeah, was, yeah. Like, it was really like, cause it was sort of like half baked race material. But then I was also just trying to make you laugh. So it's a jokes about how men's magazines are different than women's magazines. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> you know? yeah, so yeah, yeah. There was no like act that hung it all together. Well, it's so, just like every funny thing that ever crashed across through your head. And every now and again, I'd be like, "Isn't racism funny?" You know, like they were, they were like, "No, all right." And so, like, well, come on, if you look at it, yeah, if you in think a about it, light, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I didn't, yeah. So it was just like it just didn't hang together. So, like, I was, I was getting work because people liked me, and I think a lot of the times comics get work, especially at that level, because people go, they don't, they don't, they don't abuse the wait staff. They don't, they're not drunks. <laughs> like they, they know to tell people where the bathrooms are. You yeah, know, so. being nice to people is is one. And I'm always amazed when I see people in show business who are assholes. It's like, yeah. you fucking moron. Being nice is one of the best ways to ensure yes. future employment. Nobody yeah. wants to work with an asshole. Yeah, it'll get you employment when even it'll get you employment even when they just so because they like you. <laughs> like, yeah, just yeah. It's easier easier to be around. That's right, yeah, right. I mean, I think about that era of comedy is sort of connected to what we were talking about earlier. Like, just about like the how the culture sort of encourages bad behavior. That was when like I don't know if this still exists, but you'd go into green rooms at like one nighters or comedy clubs, and there'd be a list of rules, and one of them was like might literally say, "Don't hit on the wait staff." 
Yeah. Don't have, you know, and it was just a thing that was like this. That's their way of handling it. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like, just like, please, if you could please not hit on the weight stuff. Right, right. You know, like this. There's, as I said, comedy has no HR department. Yeah. If you have $10,000 or more in credit card, medical or personal loan debt, let National Debt Relief's award winning team negotiate with your creditors to drastically reduce what you owe. Inflation and living expenses are skyrocketing, and Americans are relying on credit cards more than ever. With the recent decision to keep interest rates higher than they've been in years, your debt is not getting any cheaper. Start your debt-free journey with National Debt Relief today. Go to nationaldebtrelief.com right now to start your free consultation. That's nationaldebtrelief.com. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets, up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Are you annoyingly inattentive? Do you watch a movie and then ask a zillion questions because you weren't paying attention? Do people ask, how do you sleep at night? Then you should get a mattress from Mattress Firm. They can help anyone sleep. Get to Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and get a king bed for a queen price. Save up to $700 and get a free adjustable base with select Sealy mattresses. All with free and fast delivery. Get matched at Mattress Firm. Sleep at night. Restrictions apply. See store or website for details. Can't you tell my love's a growing? How worried are you about kind of the deeper artistic issue of like, what am I supposed to be saying? Like, does that haunt you from the beginning? Is that some, or does it not haunt you at all? Or is it something you ever really feel you have a handle on? No, it, it haunted me from the beginning. I think one of the, it's funny, one of the, maybe, maybe it was a mistake. Right when I started doing comedy, Richard Pryor's book, Prior Convictions came out, which was his autobiography. Yeah. And a lot of it is about the the sort of the crazy life of Richard Pryor as it should right. be. And but a lot, lot of it is about drug stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of it is about how much he loved comedy and how and how he thought about comedy. And so it was all about finding your and so it was a lot of it's about how hard he worked to find his voice. Yeah. And so I always had this thing about like I'm, I need to find my voice. And I think I probably over focused on that in a way that sort of like ruined just figuring out how to write jokes. Yeah. Because even if you even if you find once you find your voice, you should be a good joke. You better be a good joke writer. Or right. Your voice doesn't mean anything. You got to so be I, funny. That's, yeah. you know. Yeah. 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 So I think I sort of like was pursuing this ethereal voice thing at a time where I didn't know how to write jokes. And I think that's why my act was sort of this sort of like, what is this? It's just sort of like and then I would panic and just do a joke that, that I didn't really like. But I was like, it's a joke. And so I was always like trying to figure out. And then the comics I liked were always strong point of view comedians. So like. Like at the time I started, it was also when sort of tales of Bill Hicks started going through comedy, like through the comedy communities. Like he had just died a couple years before and everybody's like trying to be the next Bill Hicks. 
You yeah, know? yeah. And and at that point, people are like passing around his albums on cassette tapes, like because yeah. they, they weren't even reissued yet, and there was no Spotify. It was just like a friend of mine gave me a cassette tape of Bill Hicks. I was like, oh, this is what I want to be. Yeah. And so then getting caught up in like, how do I, how do I channel my inner whatever? And so there's a lot of bad Bill Hicks impressions back then. Yeah. Not for me, <laughs> but for people like a lot of white, a lot of angry white guys talking about how the government and pornography are blah, right. blah, blah. Right. Truth tellers. <laughs> yeah. Truth tellers. Yeah. 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 I'm, a, I'm a poet. I'm not a comic. Yeah. Uh, and so there were, so I was like always trying to figure out how to do that. But then I was not, because there's no, if there had been an alt scene in Chicago, I might've been able to do that. But the, because there wasn't, I'm doing this on like guest spots on comedy clubs where they're like, just be funny. Yeah. You know, I, the, one of the worst sets I had at that point. Oh, to this day, actually, like I got booed off stage in 30 seconds at a club in Chicago. Oh, wow. <laughs> Cause I did my new, I wanted to open up my new Rodney King joke. <laughs> <laughs> always, so, a, always a laugh getter. Always yeah, a, niche a new, slapper. like a new one, not one I'd like something. In, it's something that now I would do, but I would make sure the joke was funny because yeah, I didn't know how to write yeah. jokes yet. So it was just me ra- rambling, not even ranting, just yeah. rambling. And I was just like, well, nope. and also you would have an audience that knows who you are and that they're willing yeah. to, you know, that's the whole difference is like, you know, cause there were for a while there, I, I, you know, I would have occasion to do stand up sets because mm-hmm. people would ask me to do stuff or to yeah. be, you know, come to a comedy festival and yeah. do our show. Um, and I was so used to little improv rooms, mm-hmm. you know, like improv and an improv audience is already, they know you don't know what you're going to say. Yeah. Like they know they're going to be watching it get made up. So there's an understanding. There's a generosity, yes. a, a, an implied generosity already. And I, you know, go to these stand up rooms to do this, you know, fill in for somebody. And I'm like, oh, these people. They don't want to see me try and figure it no, out. They're no. not interested in my discovery process. Nope. Yeah. Nope. They want well, the, their fucking yeah. chicken wings and their yep. margarita and they want and to punch laugh. lines. Yeah. And I, and I think the thing, but they still, but they also want to feel like it's happening for the first time. That's the funny thing is they, they, they don't, they want to feel like it's for them and it's sort of spontaneous. So yeah. you have to be able to sort of have this sort of like, yeah, I'm just talking. Yeah, yeah. But you better have, but a punchline better be coming. <laughs> like, yeah, better yeah, be, yeah. And you can see them, you can feel them sort of like, uh oh. They don't even know that they feel like that's not a punchline, but you know that wasn't a punch. They, yeah. they didn't read that as a punchline. And then if the next one doesn't come, and then you can feel the point where they're all like, I think this guy's bombing. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> now, is there is there a joke or a set or a moment where you kind of feel that kind of became the key from crossing over to kind of not knowing what you're doing to then being like, this is me and this is my voice. Well, it, what happened was like in uh, like, I, so I got, I sort of ba- basically I did the Montreal comedy festival in 2005. I want to say early. I, I, and I sort of went going, well, I'm going to be discovered and then be taken to LA. And I'm in, I came back and I had like a bad, my, my all new faces show was awful. And I came back and spent the next couple of years in San Francisco, like trying to figure out, like I didn't, I went into Montreal without an agent or a manager and came out without an agent or a manager which I feel like might be one of a few people that's ever happened to. But, uh, no representation in, grand opening, grand closing. Yeah. And so I so I, I spent a couple of years just trying to like sort of figure out like sort of what do I do? And then I did some shows in Okinawa with my friend Kevin Avery, who who was also in a sort of similar path of like a guy who like felt like we missed the wave of comedy. And we did some shows in Okinawa for on military bases for troops. And basically 
I bombed my face off for like a week in Okinawa. Oh we my had to God. do 45 minute sets. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and you have to do 45 minutes because they need the show to be a certain length of time. Right. And it's so, on the service men and women. You know? Yeah. And not the heroes, nothing against them, but they're not the ones in Iraq who are just happy to see people. They're, they're bored off their, they're bored off yep. their faces. Yeah. Cause there's yeah. nothing going on in Okinawa. There's no right. reason we should be there. And so then I'm just like, sort of like, over the course of the week, like riffing and coming up and watching their TV over there and writing jokes down and like, you know, like, <laughs> just sort of like writing stuff on the, like, they like this. All right. I'll talk about this. Just trying to get through it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can you know, so I get through the week and I come back like, is this what I do for a living? Like, is this, what, is this, is this what it is to be a comedian? And from that, I sort of like stopped doing sets for a few weeks and then it's like, okay, well, if I want to do this, I have to go about it a different way. And that's when I started like renting theaters and just sort of like put the cart before the horse. I, I, I named it the W. Kamau Bell Curve, ending racism in about an hour because I was like, I want to talk about racism on stage. And I want people to know that coming in. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was like a local producer. He helped me sort of put it on its feet. And it just was this. And I also brought a projector and started doing like PowerPoint slides before it was everybody was doing it. And like basically just sort of built the show I wanted to I wanted to see in the world. And, and sort of like, I'm not going to, and took it out of comedy clubs, which yeah. like small black box theaters. And the first night I did that show, you know, these are things that don't, don't necessarily mean anything, but it was the first time I ever got a stand. It was like, I got a standing ovation. Oh, wow. It was like, you know, and it was like, it was also like, I did like 90 minutes without even realizing I was doing 90 minutes when I was like struggling to put together 45, just because I allowed myself to sort of like, just do what you want to do. And it's, a, it's like an improv setting. It's a theater setting. So they're a little more chill. They're not, yeah. they're not judging, but, and after that, I'm like, oh, I don't know what this is, but this is the thing I'm going to do. This is yeah. this is what it is. And so that show sort of guided my career from this point forward. Yeah. Yeah. From that point forward. And is it and are you do you get an agent manager in that sort of space of time? I mean, it, 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 it I mean, it took a like it first. I was just doing it in San Francisco and getting like I started getting like local press. Yeah. And then I, like so it was that thing where I suddenly I was like, oh, people here care about. I didn't know the city cared about me or knew that I was here. And I started to be like a comic that they thought comics from San Francisco, Robin Williams, Kamal Bell, you know, like sort of like, right. you know, like, I, and then I, I started, I started taking it to LA and doing it to the comedy central stage in LA. And like, oh, it, I mean, it didn't happen overnight, it, but over the course of like, let's see, I started in 2007 by 2000, what? T- like I was doing festivals and things. So 2010 is I think when I got my first, I got an, I got a manager in like 2009, 2010, I got an agent. And so it didn't like all happen right away, but the whole time I was doing those three years, I was working more. I felt like I was funnier. I felt like I was doing good work. So like I sort of said, well, I know the work is good and I'm also getting rewarded, not maybe not by money in ways I hadn't before. So I'm just keep going this direction. So yeah, yeah. It, it didn't, I remember saying to my, my, my now wife, then girlfriend, like, cause I would get all this good press, even though we were broke. I'm like, People who get pressed like this eventually make money. <laughs> I just feel like you can't be told you're yeah, this yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody ever pays for it. Like, Stick so. around, honey, please. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just yeah. like, something's got to come out of this. And, yeah. You know, you know, but it, so it definitely was like, it wasn't like I did one set. It's not, it wasn't the, uh, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like I did one set and it was, now I'm on tour with Shay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but it's. But it was like a thing where like it just felt better and I felt like and the work was better. And then comics and friends of mine would come see me do that show and be like, yeah, this is the guy I hang out with. This is the guy I know. Oh, that's great. When you're doing comedy, I don't really know that guy. That's like a version of you. But this is actually the guy I sit and hang out with. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think, and I think that is kind of, you know, audiences know when it's real, even if, yeah. even when something's fake, you know, they know that it's coming from a, a real place. And I always, yeah. you know, I've had this like weird experience of sitting literally next to people and watching them try to be funny on a, on that very <laughs> yeah. specific television show yeah. thing. <laughs> and I see so much where it's just like, the people that try really hard and they assume this, like, I mean, unless you're Will Ferrell and you come yes. on in a leprechaun suit, yes. you know, <laughs> and you, you know, you've already earned that. Yeah. But so many people that the audience doesn't know and they assume an attitude and they have like a whole persona and a shtick. And I always just feel like, uh, you're already like, you're, yeah. you're starting in a hole. You've dug yes. a hole for yourself yeah. because that you have to get the audience past that. I don't buy it. Like, I don't, you know, they're just like, I don't buy that. I don't think that's true. I don't think you're being true. Yeah. Whereas they reward, you know, an actual expression of a a particular humanity, I think, you know? Yeah, I think it's true. I think, because I'm not, yeah, I never advocate for everybody's got to be on stage telling their deepest truth, but you have to be doing something that is an expression of you. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, I, I loved Andy Kaufman. Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. he was clearly doing an expression of himself. That was yes, not, yes, you know, yes. well, who knows what he was really like. But right. that, so I, I'm definitely not, I think sometimes people think, I think this is where a lot of times, like sort of the bro comics get confused. I'm not saying everybody's got to do it the way I do it, but I'm going to do it this way. You do it your way and yeah. we'll all let the chips fall where they may. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. Like, <laughs> and there, well, and also there's an audience for everybody too. That's, yeah. the, whole, that's the whole thing. I mean, I, you know, there's so many people, so many com- so many comedy people that I see on Twitter who think their job is to sit and pronounce what's good comedy and what's bad comedy. And it's like, no, it's just what an audience wants. And there's different audiences. Yeah. There's, you know, comedy that you think is just the dumbest shit in the world. There's people that love it. What are, You're going to yes. get mad at them for laughing at shit they love? I mean, unless it's, you know, hateful stuff. Yeah, no, there's... Uh, yeah. There, there's... There's definitely a line, and we can have different opinions about that. But I, the one of the great things about coming up in San Francisco is because the the scene here, the two clubs both liked me. Like I got to open for people that I wouldn't have gotten to open for in other cities. So I got to like open for Jim Norton and Brian Regan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Earthquake. <laughs> like, <you> know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and none of those audiences are my idea, or were actually my audience. Right, like, right. Let the you know, you know, I got to you know, and I got to open for. Chappelle doing five hour shows after he got back from South Africa. And, wow. you know, and I got to be, I got to sort of be on stage stretching while Paul Mooney was late to the show. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I got to, like all the different levels of yes. like, you know, I got I to feeling do, he's late a lot. Yeah. I no, get he that impression that, that he has one, his own clock. You know, has, he, Paul definitely one time they were starting the show and they got a call at the club and he was like, I'm on the tarmac in LA. I'm on my way. And this is San Francisco. Yeah, it's a f- hour flight, but the show just started, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're not going to land at the club. You're yeah, exactly. land at the airport. Yeah, it's, it's the San Francisco airport, but it ain't in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, oh, that's amazing. But so I got to. I really feel like I got to. Like you know, I got to see like Lewis Black do his first comedy set after nine eleven at Cobb's Comedy Club. Like I wow. got to like you know. So like the scene out here is so everybody sort of comes through here at some point and they don't really respect genre and boundaries, which is kind of great. So you end up on shows that you wouldn't end up on in different cities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I think, I mean, I don't know that scene, but I would assume that like, just because it's San Francisco and it's, it is such a liberal Mm -hmm. hellhole 
um, that, you know, you're going to eat that you, you are going to be able to have a safer creative atmosphere than you would in St. Louis or in Dallas, you know? uh, Yes. Uh, Cause there's, uh, uh, you know, people are just used to, they're, they're used to all kinds of different people from the, from the sublime to the, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, Uh, no, it's, it's definitely a thing that like you can find, it has that thing where it's like, it's like New York, but it's just the volumes turned down Yeah, where you can let your freak flag fly, but you're not fighting your way through the city every day. You can sort of stroll your way through the city yeah. and whatever San Francisco has become, it still had that feeling of like broke artists can move here and figure it out. Yeah. And even though people at the time were like, no, that's not the case anymore. Well, yeah. you know, but, and, and, and it had a, it has a sort of very diverse, like performing arts scene. So I could go, I sort of just through being here, I met like other performers and then I found a theater. And so I could go, I'm gonna go to that theater that I know and just say, Hey, you're, du- you're dark on Thursday nights. Can I have the next four Thursday nights for a month? Like there's that kind of access yeah. that I don't think you can have in New York. That's it's yeah. different in New York, but like, right. cause I met a guy and he's like, and he, he needed in charge. And he's like, I'll just take it out of the receipts, whatever you make. I'll, you know, I'll take my money off the top. So it was like, it was sort of still low res enough that you could pull off things that like you can't pull off in a lot of cities yeah, and diverse yeah. enough. So you can pull off the Thursday night is free in St. Louis, maybe, but you're not going to pull off that diversity of audience and thought yeah, yeah. In, in St. Louis. Speaking of the diversity of audiences, when you start doing kind of more uh, race material, when you start doing more sort of social criticism, is it, a, is your crowd mixed crowd is it a white crowd? Is it a black crowd? And what is the difference? You know, I mean, the, the, for me, the, one of the greatest things we did with the solo show and my friend Bruce, I think, came up with this idea. Was, so it was about ending racism in about an hour. And we needed to figure out how do we sell tickets because nobody knows what this is. And so you're always trying to do ticket giveaways or things to like you can half price this this night. But we just came up with a gimmick that we stayed with for years. Bring a friend of a different race. You get in two for one. Oh, wow. So. Like immediately it meant that a theater audience, which is normally a very white audience, becomes more diverse. Yeah. Just it like there's no way the diversity of the audiences. So it, it sort of made sure that like I had people in the audience of different backgrounds who could all sit in the room together and then everybody could react differently depending on what they thought. Yeah. And it sort of taught me how to go. It doesn't matter if only half the audience is laughing. That's the half that gets it. Like I sort of very right. early on was like, Oh, this is cool. So if you're in a comedy club and only half the audience laughs, you're sort of taught to think that's failure. But if you're in a crowd that's really mixed and diverse and half the audience laughs, you're like, oh, you're the cool people. You know what I mean? Like you're the. And so. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. yeah. It, it allowed me to really like play with the dem- with the dynamics of an, and the demographics of an audience. So, yeah, that. So luckily from very early on, I had a very mixed audience because I think to me, that's how that's how I want my act to work. I want. To right. be, I want some of everybody there. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, too. <laughs> being a being a, a a black man on stage doing a show called End Racism in an Hour to an all white crowd. Yeah, no, that's it's there's a tension there for yeah. everyone involved, you know? Well, and that's what I didn't want to be because I'd been enough I've been around theater crowds enough to know they're generally white audiences and I also feel like I'm gonna look like I'm full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, you, you don't you're afraid to say stuff in front of black people like I yeah just, yeah like, yeah I, I like it just i just knew that would have felt so yeah. again fake it would have felt like ridiculous right. and i have a secret for whitey 
Yeah, yeah. Only whitey can know. <laughs> only white people can come. Yeah. And I also felt like it would have been like not as much fun if I just got a generic older white theater crowd. Yeah, yeah. Like so to me I wanted some of that like some of the sort of the gut punch of the comedy club crowd and also of people who aren't normally in theater with the theater crowd who's a little more patient. So yeah. I wanted the mix and that's what happened. But yeah. No, but then I ended up one of the ways in which I made money initially was like doing the show at colleges and I ended up at a lot of colleges where it was like <laughs> Like, you know, Fort Collins, Colorado, you know, what yeah, I mean? like, yeah. it's like not the most diverse crowd I was. Ever no, in no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think also to like from sitting again, sitting in the doing the Conan show for all those years and sitting in front of an audience, which is I, I, never been less than 90 percent white. I bet you. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> Just I mean, maybe depending on the musical guest, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, might, yeah. you know, because like we'd have. Usually, though, it was like musical guests that attracted young females. It would be mm-hmm. all of a sudden the audience. Why is the audience 60 percent 17 year old girls? You know, <laughs> and it's like because it's Maroon 5 or something yes. like that. <laughs> but um, I do find that white audiences, there are certain topics they need permission to laugh at, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think if you've got a mixed crowd and the white people see Oh, there are black people laughing too. I guess it's okay. I can laugh at this uncomfortable thing that makes me scared and worried. And, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, def- it definitely. And I think for me, it's fun to then be like, look around, you know, like, sort of, because I think a lot of times audiences think they're watching you. And really, it's like, I, I sort of learned in the theater crowd, I, sort of taking the power back, go, no, 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 I'm wa- you're watching me, but I'm also watching you. Yeah, yeah. So right. you think you're anonymous. You're not anonymous. Like, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I can see you right there. Right. And 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 I can and I would sometimes walk through the crowd like, look, I can even touch you. You know what I mean? Like, right. just sort of like just to sort of breaking down that fourth wall was always and still is a big, important thing to me because, you know, it's not an, it, 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 it gets people sitting in their chairs in a different way if they feel yeah. like you can see them. Now, what, at what point do you start? I mean, you become sort of like, well, was there ever, did you, were you ever like trying to be just an actor? Cause I mean, now you're kind of W. Kamau Bell, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, the I commentarian. Would, yes, you know? yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the satirist, as Jay Leno yeah. would say, for comedians who aren't that funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who said that? Jay Leno had that like years ago, like you're yeah, a comedian, yeah. like the stages of being a comedian and you get the satirist when it means like not that funny. You're not anymore. that funny anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, so I, I I sort of knew when I didn't move to L.A., like I was like, because at some point I was like, I'm choosing to stay in San Francisco and do this show that I'd sort of whatever thoughts I had of being on Saturday Night Live were over. You know yeah. what I mean? Whatever sort of early thoughts of like getting in like that's that's not going to your own sitcom or whatever. Yeah, or my own sitcom. I was like, that's yeah, it's funny. Now that's more possible than it was before. But at that point, it was like, no, you have to go to L.A. and do all the things. But yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought I knew that that was and I sort of at that point really was looking at like Jon Stewart as like he's just Jon Stewart. Right. You know, I mean, yes, he's been he'd been in a couple of movies and he at that point he was still at The Daily Show. Or I would look at like George Carlin, and be like, he's just George Carlin. Yeah, he's not. Yes. You know, everybody gets a part every now and again. And so I really sort of thought of myself as like, that's the direction I'm going to go. It's just like I'll do things if they come up. Like I always say, if Michael Bay wants me to get stepped on in the next Transformers movie, I'll happily do that. But yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not going to go because all the little bit of auditioning I did just was awful. And I wasn't trying to get better at it. I wasn't taking acting classes. So I was like, there's no, I'm not pursuing this. So why would I go audition for things? You were telling yourself something. Yeah. yeah. Before you even asked yourself the question. Yeah. It was just like, so I just never. And then by the time, 
like because I was able to make it out of San Francisco and then get like my first TV show. There have been times now where people will be like, do you want to audition? And I'm just like, luckily, I have enough work that I start doing the things I want to do that I don't feel like I have to that I have to think about that. But it, it, yes, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be, you know, the next Bruce Lee or whatever. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I was I, th- I literally I, I was like many kids who was like, Eddie Murphy, I want to do that. Yeah. I want to do everything he's doing. And yeah. at some point you realize either you're making choices that aren't leading you there or you're pretending that you're making choices that you aren't making. And I yeah, just was yeah. like honest about the fact that like, I'm not making those choices. And, yeah. and it was scary at the time, but I think it just sort of, I got lucky that as much as we, this, this evil internet that we talk about, it just sort of things got more democratized in media. So like there was an ability to like go to, I could just put up a Brown paper tickets link in Seattle and go, I'm coming to town to a, theater that seats 150 people do you want to come to seattle and they were like yes <laughs> you know like so you know like i it was easier to sort of go it your own way yeah yeah now with the tv show the first tv show it's on comedy central right was that no right? it's on fx oh, on fx yeah. um is that an idea you had or did you start to have that kind of people saying hey what else do you want to do and then you go oh well, maybe i want to you know i mean it really was like when i wrote my solo show i really was like like I've said, like I was like, well, what what kind of show would I have if I if somebody said you can have the show you want? And I was like, it'd be like The Daily Show, but it'd be about race. Like, so that was always my yeah. sort of like operating statement. But I don't have the ability to pull that off. So I'm in a theater with a projector and slides. And so by the time. So what happened is that Chris Rock came and sees comes and sees it. And he sort of sees the vision in a way that I don't even see it. Like, yeah, this is a TV show. But he also has more experience here. So, yeah, it sort of was always based on Chris Rock seeing me do the bell curve and him being like, oh, yeah, that's I could see where that would be a show. Now, at the time, Totally Bias ended up sort of becoming it just sort of, the, the you know, and, you know, this the struggle of like if there's a person on stage talking, it's a late night talk show was yeah. always the battle that I was like, I'm just, a, it's just a TV show. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of wish it would come on Sunday mornings on PBS, you know, yeah. Uh, but just sort of because then it, there'd be these articles written about what's going on in late night. And it's like Conan, Fallon, Kimmel and me. And I'm like, that's not really. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's also the pressure to like, do you know any famous people so we can get some viral content? Look, I just got into showbiz this morning. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. The f- most famous person I know is Chris Rock and we can't put him in every sketch. You I know. know so uh, it's always so- amazing to me. The people, the people who give you the job. And that, you know, you, then they're like, all right, now can you call your friends and have them be in this thing? Yes. It's like, yeah. no, don't. That's your job. You're exactly. supposed to be the, I'm just supposed to be pretty. I'm supposed to be able to, I'm supposed to just be, yeah, I'm supposed to be able to just relax and be myself. Yeah, yeah. Call. And so I really think that like, and it was also, you know, I wasn't, I had no TV experience. So all the failures I accept, I do feel proud that like, I feel like a little bit of the work that we did sort of opened the door for, because like. After after our show gets canceled, like with very short order, Trevor Noah's at the Daily Show. Sam yeah. B gets her own show. John Oliver. I just wish I'd be able to go to John Stewart University like they did. I feel like I w- I needed that. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it did sort of that style of show becomes a thing that they give out to more than just John Stewart. But yeah, for me, it was just like people got to see me get beat up in real time. I mean, yeah, you know, like yeah. sort of like, and because we went from once a week to four days a week, which was just not. I think if we'd stayed once a week, we would have been able to, I, we would have gotten better. But four days a week, it was just, as you know, that system, it's a meat grinder. I always say it's it's laying track for a train that's moving. 
that's coming towards you. And if you don't put the tracks down, you're going to be murdered, you know? Yeah, and I I always felt like, I said, it's like a meat grinder. And sometimes there's meat to put in the grinder, but if there's not, they just put me in the meat grinder. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, we're out of meat. You're going back in the meat grinder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was also because our show, even though it was only a half hour long, it was such a, there was an interview segment, but there were so many jokes and so many written things that it just demanded a lot of like, and it was also trying to be thoughtful. It demanded a lot of material. Yeah. And we didn't have sort of the the machine of the daily show that sort of like had been doing it for a long time and also sort of was probably working on shows 10 weeks from now. Yeah. You know, like it was, yeah, we yeah. were like, we were always working on tomorrow, that night's show, basically. We were always yeah. like trying to fix that night's show. And so, and I hired a lot of my friends, which was great and also awful because then you're your friend's boss and then that gets weird. Yeah. So it just, but I mean- when it was over, I literally thought like, well, I think I think show business is done with me. Like, I felt like I was like, like it was a good run and really. And then was like, it slowly, two seasons or I mean, it was sort of like a season and a half because the first yeah. season was like it was that thing where it was like it was eight episodes and it was 12 episodes. Like they kept sort of extending it. And so it didn't. And then the second season was, yeah, when it was yeah. four days a week. And that's when it was just like. I don't even know. I could, people ask me, how many episodes you do? I have no idea. A million? I don't know. Like, you know, so yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. it was just because it was just it sort of it's all a blur. Like sometimes people will remind me about literally people I interviewed. I'm like, oh, yeah, we did interview Issa Rae before she was on TV. <laughs> like, you know, like, that was a good. And I'll remember it. That was a really good interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I do that all. The, I'd like all the people that I. Yeah, I'm like, did I meet that person or have I just seen them on television? You know, yes, <laughs> yeah. it's my particular weird little, you know, yes. niche of pinhole in the in yeah, pinhole. yeah. Well, uh, I mean, was the was the network pretty good to you? I mean, did They're, you have a good a yeah, good FX relationship and got to yeah. do what you wanted to do? Yeah, I I I was in the position a few months before the pandemic of going back. I hadn't seen any most of those people. I hadn't seen any of them in years. But I went back to FX to pitch something for with a friend of mine, and it was like a high school reunion. They're like, "Come on!" because I think they always thought that I had a career in me, and so I think they feel like happy that the, that I did end up with a career. Yeah, and, and and also they expressed regret about how it all went down, and so we were able to. It's like when you when you run into your ex, but you're both doing fine. <laughs> like, yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. You know, so yeah. Uh, but yeah, so they the network was great. Uh, John Langrath has been talked about many times as being he is great. It just it was just the I wasn't ready, and then they had never done that before, and so it was just a lot of like learning on the fly. Yeah, and we and we drove it to the wheels right off, and it fell off, and it exists in people's memories, which in a great way. Like people on Twitter, like even if I promote United Shades, some people are like, "But what about Tully Bias?" I'm like, "That's cute. It's never coming back." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. So I do I do feel like it's. A little bit like Woodstock. More people are claiming they were there than were there. Uh And also, it's been off long enough that I've heard people like, I used to watch it in middle school, and now I have a PhD, and I'm like, Jesus. Oh, I know. You you can't. You got that shit just me. I remember when, you know, at my bris, you were doing (laughs) Oh, no, fuck. I'm old. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. So it's like people have like, it helped form a lot of people's political ideology, which is great. So it's, uh, but yeah, definitely was like, it was. It's when I, I think about it, it's like, I'm glad it, I wouldn't be here if not for that. And also at the time it felt horrible when it was canceled, but also felt like I couldn't survive it. So it was. a Yeah. Yeah. It's the kind of thing, too. I think that kind of show that I think a lot of the things that like really get traction and last 
when there's somebody like you, it's because there's somebody running the show or something, something that really, somebody that really knows what they're doing. Yes. Who yes. gives you a sense of safety. Yep. Whereas if yeah. you have to be the guy on camera and also the brave soul yep. with his hand on the rudder behind yep. the scenes, it's a lot. It's a yeah, lot. No, th- and you, there's a lot of You don't energy. know what you're doing. TV, you don't. Yeah. You, the only way to know what to do on TV is to be on it for 10 years. Yeah, and then you just get a sense, like okay, yeah, this is yeah. what you do. You know, I, mean, I don't mean funny. one I, thing. I, I mean, I read just, bo- you know, yeah, I read both those late night books written by Bill Carter. Yeah, uh, it was like because <laughs> I was just like trying to figure it out. Yeah, and I remember there was a thing, and they were probably you know, no help. They well, they were like they showed me like, oh, this is what I'm missing. Like there was like because yeah, yeah. I was reading about the behind the scenes people, and I mean, so I was obviously reading about Conan's show, and I was reading about how like like. And I, it's weird to say this to you, but there was like Conan's exec was like Conan felt like if he left the room that his exec would say people knew that if they heard it from the exec, it's like hearing it from Conan. You may know not that to be true, but that was the sense of like Conan could leave the room and feel like that his that whatever he wanted was still going to be said and yes, sort of instituted. It, that's true with his yeah. with Jeff Ross, our executive yeah, Jeff producer. Ross. Yes, that's true. I knew the exact opposite was true. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I remember reading about Jeff Ross, like, I need a Jeff Ross. Because <laughs> I knew that if I left the room, that what was happening was like, the exec was like, look, I don't know what Kamau's talking about. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so, like, I knew, he's crazy. He's, I don't know why he's so stressed out. We're, we all got jobs. Anyway. Yeah. So, like, I, so I, that's the thing that I was missing was that, that feeling that, like, somebody had my back. And so, but it sort of defined how I went forward. Like I don't have any patience for that anymore. Yeah. Uh, for, like if I feel like if it's if it's not clear to me, you don't have my back. Then it's like then it's, we got to go. You yeah. Know? Again, yeah, yeah. I get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. 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 No. It just it becomes a matter of efficiency. It's like mm-hmm. I can't. I you can't. I mean, I still try to be a very painfully polite person. I try to mm-hmm. be a you know a considerate person, but I also learn how to say no. And how to say like mm-hmm. this is does not work, or when something's mm-hmm. you know pitched to me, and I just am like, oh no, I'm not, I'm not going to mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, I'm yes. not going to do that. That's not good. That's not yeah. right. You know, and that's the thing I ran into is like, there's nothing worse than being repitched the thing you said no to. Yeah, yeah. You know, and be, and there's nothing worse than being repitched it more than once. Yeah, like and so like things just like I and so eventually you're just like okay because that eventually it's like well the show shoots tonight and this is all we have is this thing that you said no to two days ago. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess I will uh, offend my mom and every person <laughs> in my life who knows me and knows that I don't think this way because this is what we're doing. Because <laughs> yeah, because we got we got to sell you know arid extra dry or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I just would like, it was just this thing where I was just, you know, again, I became the meat. And yeah. I mean, I, I wrote about this in my book, the last episode of the show, like when everybody's like, like we knew the show was canceled. The audience knew we found out like two days before I was actually like, Oh, thank God. Like I was like, I, I would, I'd love to see the shot. Cause I think it's on camera. I would imagine it was like, thank you. I was, I was like, thank you. That's the show. It's been a great ride, everybody. And there's the stage is filled with people. It's just random nonsense. And then like we, the camera stopped down and it was like, and it was like, I sort of would check with the stage manager. Are we good? Any pickups? Nope. And I just walked out of the building. Like, <laughs> like on the elevator downstairs and like, didn't even get in the car and just walked uptown in New York. Like, wow. like, just like, I am done. Like with my, 
it's funny. I almost changed my clothes. And then my friend, Martha, who had directed my one person show who I brought on in the second season because I needed somebody on my back. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to go change clothes and I'm going to walk. I'm going to go. I'm going to get out of here as soon as possible. She's like, you don't have to change clothes. I'm like, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I own these clothes now. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, because it was just like, I, you know, walked out of it like it was on fire. And, yeah. You know, had you, did you have a kid at this point? Yeah. No, I had a oh, wow. daughter. Yeah. yeah so that's... she. Yeah, so she was like her when she was born. It was right around the time that it was like we were starting to take meetings about is this going to be a TV show? Yeah, and so her early life was like, like we were in San Francisco. Then we moved to New York to an apartment that sucked. Then we moved to another apartment that sucked. Yeah, then we moved to a real apartment, and then we would Airbnb back here in the Bay Area when we were on vacation. So we'd see our family and friends, yeah, and so yeah. yeah. So she, we we talk about it now. She doesn't really remember it, but there's lots of there's a great photo of her with Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle's blowing bubbles for her, and I'm like. Some of this was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don Cheeto blew bubbles for my daughter. Yeah. Neither one of them remember it, but I have yeah. a picture of it. Yeah, I have a good picture of my son when he was about three uh, with a lollipop uh, with Snoop Dogg. With, uh, <laughs> it was our, was our Christmas card one year. My son was very chill. Oh, and, you know, and, and Snoop was great, too, because, like, Somebody, I, I think it was like the segment producer was like telling my son, like, get up on Snoop's lap. And my son wasn't one. And Snoop like was like, he's cool where he is. Like Snoop understood like <laughs> yeah, the perspective kids. of the child. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's no, he's, he doesn't want to do it. Don't make him do what he doesn't want to do. Don't make him sit on a stranger's lap for yeah, your entertainment. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, that's, that, I mean, that's the, every now and then with my kids, it's like, there's this sort of thing where it's like, they get to sort of be, have access to these cool things and you go, well, I guess this is what makes the uh, the grind of this business okay. You know, yeah, paying yeah. rent. And also, my kids get to, like, you know, the other day they got to say hi to Kelly Clarkson because I did her show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And it's like, it's from Trolls. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so it's a, it all works. It, it works out on yeah, some level sure while does. you're, like, panicking about what happens next. Were you worried? I mean, I imagine you didn't, you weren't home much when you were doing the show. When you No, were, it was yeah. like, I mean, it was, that was the other thing. It was also run inefficiently. So it's like, you know. 12 hour days regularly, you know, I think there's also, this is also the thing about comedy. There's sort of a romance about working late hours and like, you know, like, you know, we were there all night and, you know, and this is like, I didn't want to be there all night. Yeah. I don't either. <clears throat> and so it really was hard on, it's hard on my marriage. It was hard on me. I like, was sort of like, I just got, I was sick a lot. Like I was yeah. just like, you know, a friend of my, my friend, Harik Kondabolu, who's he's been on Conan a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he said to me at one point on the show, he was like, oh, my God, I just realized something. You can't ever have a sick day. I was like, nope. Yeah, yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you, if you do, you owe it to the network. They yeah. don't. They don't yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was uh, – I was – yeah. I, and that's when I when I left the show. I was like, whatever happens next, I have to make it work better for my family life. Yeah, I because I, I can imagine when you've got a little baby at home and you think, this is what success is going to be. Like, this mm. – for me, what I do – this work life, that's my work life from now on. Yes. And then you think like, well, oh, well, yeah. that's that's too much. Like, yeah. That's and it's like too big a it, price to pay. And you sort of go, well, I'm successful and I'm making money. But there was a point where it's like, I don't even know how much money I'm making because I don't I'm not. It's not making my life fun. <laughs> like, it's not like it's not like. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. I don't have right. that. Like, uh, it's it's just work. Like, I could be working for free for all yeah. I know. <laughs> like, it could be just room and yeah. board. I have no idea. Because I'm just working. There's not like that yeah. thing where it's like, I see those pictures on Instagram of people on yacht. Like, I don't, when do I get to do that? <laughs> like to sort of like to, you know, or, and so it just felt like it really was just an intense. And 
we were in a new city. Like me and me and my wife and Sammy moved to a new city. So we, it wasn't even like we were around our, we couldn't see our friends or no our family. No structure. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's when my, when my wife got, after this got canceled, Melissa and my wife got pregnant. And the thing that really swung us moving back to the Bay Area was like, a baby in New York City where you yeah. don't have any family or friends? Like, yeah. no, like that's, that's yeah. we got to go. So we gotta, all it again, takes is, is dragging a stroller up or down subway steps. Subway, and yeah. you realize, no, no, no. This well, is it's not just so funny because New Yorkers know that. And so there's always somebody who will help you do it, but it just yeah. feels so like depressing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, what do you, yeah. I mean, at this point, does it, does the passing of, of totally biased make you rethink the direction that you're going? Like, do you think like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you think like, maybe I should not do such kind of social commentary kind of material? Or? No, I just felt like I, I don't, two things. One, it was funny to say this now. I was like, I don't think I should ever take a job at a corporation because yeah. <laughs> it's because FX was Fox. And it's like, it just felt like a lot of it felt like working at a corporation and not like work, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's funny now we're getting CNN. So that I know, really I has- know. It, well, I, I mean, cause that's like, that's like that's a naive thing to yeah, say because it's that's like a hurt thing to say, yeah. right? And it's like, well, even if you, you know, you're like yeah. you're gonna eventually have, yeah, because if, yeah. if you're gonna make money, if you're gonna that's like how it really works, be engaged in capitalism, eventually it's you're yeah. owned by a subsidiary of somebody, yeah, yeah. So no, so I just was like, but I was like, I, but there was sort of talk about like maybe rebooting it or all these sort of like people wanting like getting pitches to go do it at other doing similar things. I was like, I can't do, I don't want to do an instant news response show. Because really, that hadn't been how I had worked in general. I'd worked yeah. in like longer, sort of bigger, longer term cultural things about racism. Not like I hated sort of the aspect of the show was like, here's the dumb thing the per- the dumb person said yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes I'll write those jokes on Twitter, but I hate it. I felt like you're just all suddenly just looking for that. You're just combing the news for that. And then I hate it. If you don't find one, you just find one that feels close enough. Yeah, yeah. Like this feels, even though you're like, you really would, in any other situation, you'd give them the benefit of the doubt. Like right, right, right. Like, I remember we were like looking at a video of uh, Guy Fieri on Totally Bias, something he had had an argument with somebody, and there was joke pitches for Guy Fieri, because he'd had an argument with somebody, like, I'm like, what are we doing? Like, 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 <laughs> are we, what did he do that we're that mad at him? I like, know, I know. That I need to stand on stage and be like, look at this asshole. Yeah, like, you know. yeah, yeah. And so, uh, oh yeah, yeah, that kind of thing is always like everybody's got to make their living. I always feel like he, he's over there doing his thing. And I it was like on? a person. It was clearly like a cell phone video that he wouldn't want. And like he was, we, he's probably embarrassed it's out there in the world. It's yeah, like it's not yeah. like you know, yeah. So just to me, it was like there was a moment like I don't want to be that. I don't want to be the instant response to the news. Yeah. And so I was like, whatever I do, it's got to be something that feels at a more. And I don't want a daily. I don't want anything in the talk show universe. So I was like, yeah. I don't want anything. So it did change how I, but I also thought I was probably just going to be a guy who was like doing college shows and hustling for the right. Cause I was like, there's nobody in TV is going to be interested. Like, I just felt like I, it felt like such a, like a, such a colossal failure that I was like, nobody, and I'd seen specifically black men have colossal failures like that and sort of basically disappear. Yeah. You know, as far as like talk shows and, or TV shows. And so I was like, I'm that guy. And Again, I just was lucky that the TV universe had expanded. And so I ended up having meetings with like news networks or news outlets because they saw me as like a funny news person. Yeah. And CNN had already had just like gotten Anthony Bourdain's show and Lisa Ling. And they had just sort of launched these shows where they basically said, come do your show over here. And they were like looking to build one from the ground up. 
And I had always been sitting on my wife's couch back in the day going, watching Bourdain going like, how do you get that job? Yeah, yeah. Like, so it was just like, I wouldn't have, I didn't know how to apply for that job, but that was actually the job I always wanted. was like, how do you get the walking around talking to people and saying funny things? Yeah. And so I was lucky that there was an opening there that they didn't know I'd always wanted that job, but then it, I ended up there and it was able to, the thing they pitched me, I was able to sort of spin into what I wanted it to be, which is what we have now. So, yeah. But at the time it was just a pilot. So it was just like, shoot this pilot with the KKK and hope it works out. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's <laughs> most things with the KKK are like that. Just yeah. Hope yeah, it yeah. works out. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Hope it works yeah, out. yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the show's doing real well now, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've, I mean, it's the great thing about CNN is that there's just not a lot of they only have a handful of shows. So they take yeah. care of them pretty well. So or very well. I'll say very well since I just signed a new contract. They take care of them very well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And I'm not I don't feel like I'm competing with other shows and other networks. It's just yeah, sort of like I was going to say, there's not like it's this huge pressure to like, yeah, get a better number than the other guy or the other guy or the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. You have to just outdraw what the news would do on Sunday nights at 10 o'clock, which is very little, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and and when the news is bigger than me, they bump me for that news. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, it's not, there's a very clear hierarchy. And so when yeah. they bump me for that news. I, I go, I, people get, I can't believe they bumped your show. I'm like, Hey, if they bump it, that means it's still on the air. So, right. so yeah, so it just, and then I was, I got to have the, the, the spot of following Bourdain's show, which was like the spot every original series wanted, which let me know that they cared about my show. Yeah. And so it was just like this thing where it was like, it, it, it couldn't have worked out better for a guy who was like, I don't think I want to work in TV again. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, and then over the course of the, the show's going into its fifth season, I've been able to make the show more in my image every year. So to the point of like this year is the first year the show's actually being produced by the same company that produced Bourdain's show. Yeah. So it's like, it's, I mean, I, it has taken, it has been a fight and a struggle and uh, some people are, some people got fired and some people I said, I, you know, I had to sort of draw lines in the sand and go, I'm not doing this if this, and you know, and I've, and the shows, some shows I look back on and I'm like, Oh, that's embarrassing. I can't believe I did that. Cause I didn't know better. But like, I definitely feel like it, I'm able to make the show in my own image and it's not a big network show where it feels like there's a lot of pressure on it. I get to sort of say what I want to say. Yeah. Now you just finished, you said you were just finishing up kind of recording and stuff for uh, the new season or. Yeah, we've been recording. I think that, I think I recorded last video I did was two days ago in the show, like in my wife's closet. And when, yeah. do, and when does it, is it, is it the new season started or. It, no, it starts July 19th. They just announced it yesterday. So wow. yeah, July 19th, we Sundays at 10 o'clock. July 19th, which they, it was supposed to be started. It was supposed to start in April, the end of April, but you know, there's been some news. So my show. Yeah. You bumped. know, there's, there's, uh, and actually there's been a lot of stuff in the news about race lately. Yeah. So I, you're I, really, you're really I read clever. that. I heard that on NPR. <laughs> <laughs> what? Now this is, this is, I mean, you know, cause I'm, I find myself wondering what was the, you know, like, why was, why was this the breaking point? Mm-hmm. You know, and I and my only answer to that is, you know, like George Floyd just happened at a time when with the pandemic and Trump, it was just like enough, you know, like, yeah. why? Why wasn't it somebody before? You know, why? You know, I mean, I think I think when people like, again, I think when you say the breaking point, I think for black people, there's been a lot of breaking points. Of course, it's just we were yeah, able yeah. to like and I just say that to say that, like, for me. Eric Garner was the breaking point. Like I was just like the dude just because I think also there's something about him that I feel like I am him. I'm a big black guy who's got asthma, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. 
And so, but I think it is a hundred percent. And, you know, one day somebody's going to write the book that says it's not this because somebody's going to have a hot take. Yeah. But until Malcolm Gladwell writes that book, it's, it's a hundred percent the pandemic. Like everybody who cares about the news is at home watching the news yep. and the news, especially, and, and the news said pandemic, pandemic, wait a second, this, yeah. like it just, and so all of us who were sort of, who were already paying attention to the news suddenly saw a video that maybe the news would have shown before the pandemic, but there would have been more news competing. And some of us would have been too busy to, to, to going to the big concert in town or mm-hmm. going to our yoga class or whatever. So that like, even if it had been on the news, you just wouldn't have been watching the news that intently. Yeah. So there's, it's the opportunity to be able to see it that many times. And I think it was such a, like a, there's all sorts of black people been killed by the cops, but to see the whole thing play out, you can yeah. see it from stem to stern. There's yeah. not like, it's not a 15 second video that people are like, I need to know the whole story. You can see the whole story and, and the insidious way in which the cop does it, like where it's like, he's clearly not even, he doesn't feel any, he's not struggling to do the thing he's doing. Mm-mm. He's just doing it. He's just yeah. killing him. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's, it's, it, it is the perfect storm, but I think that it very easily could have been any other videos if it, if they had come through at this time. So right. I think that, I think sometimes I don't want to say that George Floyd's death is more, is worse than anybody else's or more or more hard yeah, that's to watch. That's what gets hard. That's what gets yeah. hard is that it, you don't want to, you know, diminish equal yeah. horrors, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine we don't have video of Brianna Taylor, but you're in your house in bed with your boyfriend and suddenly the door they gets just shoot through the wall. Yeah. Then they just start Fucking shooting. Like amazing. If we had video of that, I would like to think that that would be the thing we would be talking more yeah, about. I mean, yeah. People are yeah. still working hard to get people to talk about it. But I think that like, or this kid, I just found out, like I'm finding about other black people who were killed. who I hadn't even heard about this kid, Elijah McClain, 23 yeah. year old dude, you know, the violinist just, kid. Yeah. Yeah. These are, I mean, to me, and this is why that one's hard on me. Cause he's like, he's just a black weirdo. I'm yeah. a black weirdo. Like, yeah. you know, like, He's just walking down the street being weird. Just a sweetheart. Just, just like a, a sweetheart, sweet, delicate just... creature that's like too, too, I don't mean this in de- derogatory, too soft for this world. He's yeah, just too just like, can't, just, can't too just much love and too much yeah. empathy and too much just and yet vulnerability. Been, and yet had been clearly, been, it felt like he had been sort of, he had learned how to talk about himself to people who didn't understand him. Yeah. He's like, I'm an introvert. Like he was yes, like, yes. that to me, that's language you learn. Yes. Because you've had to deal with conflict before. Right. And like, I love I'm, you all. Like, yes. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. Just the way of like, I'm trying to be clear about like, yeah. I understand that you don't understand me. Yeah. And I want to help you understand me. And they didn't give him that option. And there's audio, the audio of that is horrible. Like, yeah. It's just, it's heartbreaking. If there'd been video of that, and we and it was George Floyd. That would be. I think. I think the, the. I think the thing that's important is to go like George Floyd's murder does mean something, and it's yeah. and and more. A lot of work is being built off the back of this horrible event, but it's people. You know, Rashard Brooks was killed after George Floyd. Yeah. You know, it's uh, there was a there's two people in Atlanta who the cops broke the windows in their cars and and pepper sprayed them. And oh yeah, they didn't die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't yeah. die, but it's like if you know, but like, why is that got to be okay? You yeah. Know? So I think that like the the the, the I think it's the pandemic is, is what has done it. You know, the striking think, thing yeah. to me too, and I th- and again, I think you're right. It is the pandemic because I mean, I sh- I can only speak for myself. I. I agree with you 100%. I'm used to the outrage that you feel at a Philander Castile, and then life goes on, you know, and there's more stuff. And it's like the guy had a fucking gun 
license. Like, Gun you know, like he yeah, did yeah, everything yeah, yeah. he's supposed yeah. to do. He, he told them he was, he told yeah. them he had it. And, yeah, he, yeah. And, it, and, you know, and all it's, and which, you know, it undercuts all that gun bullshit, you know. Yep. Which and the NRA didn't stand up for all him. All fucking just, yeah. bullshit, yeah. Yeah. But the one thing about, about uh, George Floyd is that even like the sort of, you know, soft racists, you know, like your, your sort of power structure kind <laughs> yeah, of like, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. like they're not really overtly, but yeah. you really got a sense of people saying like, oh, yeah, that was really bad. Yes. No, oh, I yeah. That, well, you got to admit that was bad yeah. because so many other, t- you know, there's so many other videos that are just fucking horrible and people are like, well. Yeah, you know that he should have well, done what they told him. You know, well, I think I think the other thing too is that a lot of times I think specifically white folks, those soft races, they don't actually watch the videos. No, so they hear about it. Maybe they maybe it flashes by them on the news, but they don't sit down and watch it. Yeah, and so their judgment is based on just sort of like I'm pro police. The police probably did a good job. I might put half an eye on it, but I'm not going to watch it. Yeah, you know, and I think with George Floyd, people had ample opportunity to watch it, and I think yeah. for. And I think the other thing is that the country, Trump and his and his administration and many states around the country have done such a poor job of the pandemic that people were already feral just with the fact that the pandemic, they'd done it. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the pandemic was a good way well. to put it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that people were already like, and yeah. like, and in the midst of this, you're going to do this. Yeah. I got to go to the street. I got to go make my voice be heard. So I think yeah. that like if, if the, if the, if the, if in, in an alternate universe, President Hillary Clinton had said there's a global pandemic and I've been talking to this guy, Andrew Yang, who none of you have heard of because he hadn't run for president, but he's a Silicon Valley guy and he's convinced me about universal basic income. And so during the extent of the pandemic, every American gets two thousand uh, dollars that so just not that that's enough money for everybody, but just to sort of help you get through it. Yeah. Your rent is canceled. Your mortgage is canceled. And we're going to make the banks whole so they don't get mad about losing that money. And we're just going to spend whatever that is because we're America and we just make money. <laughs> like we just, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And and that then the George Floyd thing happens. And I'm not saying I wish that didn't. I think it reads differently. People aren't feral and frustrated with how the government is treating them already. You know. Yeah. So I think that like there's just a lot of different things that hopefully, I mean, I hope leads to structural and institutional change. But the appetite has to be there after we get a vaccine. If we get a vaccine, because I think that or and yeah, also yeah. And if and if this if we just become pandemic America, like we never lose the pandemic again. At some point, you people aren't in the streets every day anymore. But yeah, yeah, hopefully it, I'm sure some people are being inspired to run for office right now based on what's happening right now. And that's how we got the squad was people who were like, Trump. No, I'm not yeah. doing this. I'm not, yeah, you know? yeah. So I think I, I would imagine it will like change how change people's ideas of what they can do and how yeah. they can affect change. So and well, the fact that police departments are slashing, not slashing, but taking money out of police departments, that, that cities are taking money out of police departments yeah. is a part of that. Right, right. No, it's, it is it is kind of like, okay, yeah, shit's finally happening. The yeah. shit that people have been screaming about for years and years. And like, okay, yeah. I mean, Mississippi, that is the Mississippi took the Confederate flag off their flag. I mean, that's... Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. It's yeah. incredible. And, you know, and it is like, I mean, the thing that always strikes me about about racists is that and and why people like Richard Nixon or Donald yeah. Trump matter to racists is because they know it's bad. They yeah. know racism is wrong. They know it's wrong to prejudge a person based on the color of their skin. 
all they need is the permission yes. to say that it's okay. Because yes. they don't, they wouldn't, if they didn't think racism, I mean, they're overtly racist. Yeah. If they didn't think it was bad, they wouldn't be so offended by b- being called a racist. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but yes. it's like when you call somebody a racist, they're like, I most certainly am not. Yes. I do not prejudge. <laughs> like, well, yes, you fucking do. And it, yeah. you know it's bad. Yes. So every sort of like, you know, mush mouth kind of meandering rationale for some kind of basically racist, you know, whether it's a law or a program or an initiative, it's all, they all know it's bad and they just get really hurt when you say, yeah, but, you know, that's racist, you know. Well, I think it's, I always think about that moment when Trump was running for office and nobody was taking him seriously and he was on Jake Tapper's show and Jake Tapper asked him about the fact that he had, like, gotten support from the Ku Klux Klan and David Duke and what did he think about it? And Trump's answer was like, well, I, I don't I, I don't I'd have to look at the groups and really understand what that meant and why they were supporting me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Jake Tapper was like the Klan and yeah. David Duke. And Trump was like, ah, I'd have to really look, take a look at it and really see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that should be like, well, you're incapable of running for office if you right. can't. Because and again, as you said, even the Klan knows it's not a good look to be in the Klan, which is why they wear the hoods. Like, yeah. that's like, so <laughs> if you had said, I don't support the Klan, the Klan would be like, he's saying that, but he really likes us. They know. Right. right. They know but the you code. Felt yeah. He, was too, he didn't want to offend the Ku Klux Klan and David Duke. Yeah. And, and I think the problem is, and this is happening right now with the Karening of America, white people generally don't see themselves as members of the group of white people. They see themselves as individuals. So, like, if that when Ben Carson says what he says on TV, every black person in the country goes, oh, oh, Jesus, oh, we're going to pay for that one. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And we're going to come, we're going to get somebody to get to you, like, when he, whatever he said about defending Trump. But when white people see Trump on TV, if you didn't vote for him, you're like, well, I'm just not going to say his name anymore. And you don't feel it as like, that's, that's a bad reflection on me. Yeah. And right now, I feel like white people are starting, some white people are starting to understand it's a bad reflection on you. Oh, I'm is, fucking... And, you know, I can't say this like on Twitter or something. I am continually fucking horribly embarrassed <laughs> by, by, by my yeah. fellow whites. They're just, I mean, it's just like, uh, people, come on. Like, uh, yeah. You know, we are becoming, we're not, you know, the, the demographics, they're catching up to us. Yeah. It, it's inevitable. And either we go out classy. You know, or or we or we set the world on fire. And I think we've decided we figured out what set, we've chosen. You know? Yeah, we set the world on fire. I mean, I think that like, you know, I think that's the thing I want. I would I would encourage you to I mean, I, and I've seen you on Twitter. I've seen you say things like that. So but I think yeah. the more that the more that white people say that out loud. I mean, think about every every time like Kanye West has a new song that just came out. And it becomes a debate. You see an open debate among black people on Twitter. Like, what are we doing here? Are we with it? I like the song. <laughs> but what about the Trump stuff? I know. And it, black people it's, are it's, open. It's catchy. It's catchy. Yeah, it's catchy. Yeah. Well, it feels like he learned his lesson. I don't think he feels like it. Like, black people are always ready to have an open debate about the black people that we feel like are problematic. Diamond and Silk. We're like, nope, not with us. Like, we're yeah, very clear yeah. about, like, but white people tend to sort of go, ah, you know, in a way that I feel like is ultimately not helpful. Like, I think. I think the yeah. Karen thing is a really great indicator of white people understanding. Like, like there was one I saw recently, like the fact that white women still keep Karening, even though it's a verb, mm-hmm. is like they see themselves as individuals. So some white woman was yelling at these black people saying, you assaulted me. And a bunch of other white women surrounded her going like they didn't. Those black people did not do that. Right. To you. Right. They wouldn't have done that six months ago. Yeah. 
like that you understand like that's a reflection on you and also you have the privilege to go get her in a way that these black people if the cops show up it's going to be their word against hers yeah, and we know yeah. how that goes down and a lot of it and i don't mean i'm certainly not making excuses but a lot of these people they just don't have any clue they don't mm-hmm. have any clue about like the <sighs> how bad they are <laughs> i mean it's i don't yeah. want you know i mean it's it, we're, no i mean i think i've taken enough of your time but, you know but so. one of the first things you learn as a person of color, and this is true, I would say, of certain, if you're also certain religious groups, not Christianity in this country because of the dominant culture, but like you're sort of res- you're responsible for all the members of your people. Yeah. And you learn that as a black person, if a, if a black dude, if, you're, if there's two black kids in your in your class and you're one of them and the other black dude gets an F, you kind of got an F. I got to get an A to make sure, he, you know, that you're responsible for the people around you. And if you're either helping them or making it clear that you don't support what they're doing in a way that like, you know, like when, 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 when terrorists who are Muslim commit violence, everybody's like, why aren't Muslims blah, blah, blah. They're like, we're doing it all the time. You're not listening. And why does it, why does, why does, why do we have to do it louder? (laughs) Like, you know, like we're, we're we're the, we're the biggest victims of this. Of course we're doing it. You know? So, but I think white people don't, you know, I think white people feel like your family is your responsibility Maybe the maybe your 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 friends are your responsibility, but not the white person even across not even your neighbor if you don't like them if if they're white like I yeah. don't know that guy. I don't like that guys but it's like they're they're in the neighborhood I live in there's white families and a black family and the black family up the hill I'm not friends with them but if they come to my door and go like hey I need your help there's racism I'm just gonna go all right I'll, right, right 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 I'll just I'll just run down the street I don't even know where we're going yeah but if yeah. you said there's racism yeah. I'm here to, I'm you know I'm here to I'll grab my racism right. kit. They're you know. they're making fun of my friends Diamond and Silk. You gotta oh. help me. <laughs> Hold on a second. Before we run, let's yeah, sit down yeah. and talk for a second. I would I would still have to address the issue. Now, when you say friends, yeah, how do you yeah. define friendship? <laughs> what do you think about global warming? Let's talk about let's get real basic. Well, uh, like I say, I've taken up enough of your time and we're getting to, you know, the wind up here. And um the next step is like what's what's up for you next, Kamau? What like what do you are you going to do more of the same? I mean, do you have some sort of? <laughs> I, I mean, have, I do is there like, some secret goal we don't know there's about? Goal. There's a secret. Yes, it's it's a it's, it's yacht time. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I I, the, I feel a responsibility to like really work harder to be a part of bringing other voices through the door. Yeah. So I feel like if I like if this show, if this CNN show, which is going to be on for a few more years, which is great, but if I don't start bringing other voices through either CNN's door or other doors that I'm not really about this life, as they say. So I feel mm-hmm. like a real to produce to, cause I think the lesson of Bourdain, and he said this in the last, in the show I did with him in Kenya, it's not about him. It's about other people's voices. And so yeah. for me, it's like, that's, I, I take that very seriously. And so I feel like if, if, if I'm not trying to, I could just sit and do this job and be okay. But I think it's about figuring out other ways to get other voices through the door, even if it's not travel shows, just other ways to get other, other mediums. So I, yeah, I definitely feel like, I have to be a part of like kicking the door open and then bringing and then holding the door open. Yeah. Well, that's so good. yeah, and also I hope to get a podcast. So those two things. <laughs> <laughs> I tell that you, these mean. things, these yeah. things are real cash cows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I can get a podcast again. I'm really hoping. <laughs> talking to my agent about it. How do we yeah. get a podcast? Those the podcast company bought me some nice headphones. <laughs> I, nobody else ever did that for me. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's yeah. a good start. That's a good start. <laughs> but no, I think that like I, you know, I, ultimately the real goal is to figure out a way to like, like, you know, it's funny. 
I say this all the time, like my resting rate is pretty lazy. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm pretty, me too. I would, I would like to just sort of do nothing. As an only child, I spent a lot of time doing nothing. Yeah. And so really all of this work I'm doing right now is to try to figure out a way to get back to doing nothing when I still have my senses about me. Yeah, so yeah. Like, like, so like I'm really like, I, why are you working so hard? So I can do nothing. That's right, the, right, right. So I, know. I, don't, yeah. I don't see myself like, if I'm still working this hard in 20 years, great if there's still work, but also I'll be like, ah. I didn't yeah. do something right. Did Pixar call? I want to do a voice right. in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're an activist just to, to support your pacifist. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If, if, if we if yeah. racism ends in America and institutional structural, and I can just sort of be a black weirdo, and also universal basic <laughs> income becomes a thing, and I can afford my bills on that, I'll be out. Yeah. 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 No, I know. It's. I said that once to Jeff Ross, our producer. Years and years ago, or we were talking about the lottery, and uh, and I said something like, "Yeah, if I won the lottery, you would not see me again." <laughs> and he laughed and said, "Like really?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't need to be a talk show sidekick." No, no I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I would put money into good causes. I would, yeah. still, you know, I'd be. I'm one, sure I'd, I'd be, get bored after a couple of years. You know, I don't think I'd get bored. There's a, <laughs> I think I, I mean, I really do think I would figure it out. Like, I, yeah, I would love to figure out if I could get bored. But no, I. I I mean, but there's a reason why neither one of us. I mean, are you playing the lottery? Uh, I do only occasionally. Yeah. See, I, I mean, yeah. I, I say that too, and I was always like, but I'm not like that person who got like twenty dollars of lottery tickets every no, week. No. So like, clearly, I, I feel like I got to get this through hard work. But if I found a lottery ticket that won, and <laughs> I would be like, where'd Kamal go? <laughs> he was just here. Wow. He seemed really committed to all these issues, but wow. Now it's just tumbleweeds. Yeah, it's just like the ACLU just got a $100 million <laughs> like, <laughs> like donation yeah. anonymously, and Kamal yeah, yeah. is gone. Kamal is gone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, – well, you know what, Larry? Because there is the third question of my three questions is kind of like, what have you learned? And I think, like, for you, I mean, because so much of what you do is either overtly or, or you know, sneakily instructive. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is there something – like, what I, – I guess, like, for you, I'd put it like, what about your kids? Like, what what do you hope – what do you ki- hope your kids – learn from you that will make their way easier and better just i mean mean, yeah the world changes but i mean what what can they take from you i mean i think the thing that uh what can they take from me it's really important to me because i think we're both in a position of like raising kids with more privilege than we grew up with yes and so for me it's like I want my kids to have the privilege of being an asshole, but have the <laughs> ego to not be, but to sort of have the humbleness to not be an asshole. Yeah. Like, I think the greatest privilege is if your kids can be like, you don't know who I am, but I also want my kids to have the empathy to never say that. So for me, it's like, it's, I think the thing I'm trying to always remind them of, and I'll say this, like, we don't deserve these nice things. We yeah. have them, but we don't, I, I don't want you to think you deserve all this. And I want you to have some sense of like, charity and wanting the world to be better so i think yeah. that and i and they and the two-year-old has not learned that she's all about herself but the other two we constantly talk about that and so we've had a lot of real clear direct conversations about george floyd and coronavirus and i'm happy that i feel like my kids are curious about it and want to know more about it while at the same time i want them to be kids but so for me that's the thing i had i was a kid who was like wait tell me about the who's this martin Luther king jr guy i keep hearing about you know yeah but also like i want to play with legos so i think that's the thing i want them to have and you can enjoy your life but also not be a jerk boy that's a good one 
Yeah. Don't be a jerk. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Don't be a that's jerk. like, oh, that's like pan, pan yes. world advice. Yeah. Yes. And so global advice. Just don't and be encouraging a jerk. their curiosity of like about the world. Like it's great. Like my kids were like, my kid today was like, what's the fourth? My five year old was like, what's the fourth of July? <laughs> like she's sort of like, it's not like, <laughs> like understanding that it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, answering that question instead of sort of, I was like, let's find a video. So we pulled up a video about the fourth of July. So like really that curiosity is the thing that I think I had that I'd like to see them continue. Well, thank you so much uh, for this. I appreciate you taking time out of your day and, you know, thank you. And I'm happy, I'm happy to do it. No, it's, it's great. To see yeah, it's, it's it's great to have these. All the conversations I have are like two minutes on the news, so I'm happy to have a long form conversation. Oh, good, yeah. good, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I've always, you know, I've always liked you, and uh, you know, I don't like many people. I know. Uh, so. <laughs> That's what they say about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, good luck with the new season. It's again July seventeenth, July nineteenth, nineteenth, and uh, Sunday at ten so p.m. Check it out. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. on CNN and. Um, I hope to see you soon in the flesh. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm becoming, I'm making a lot of good friendships through this pandemic. I just don't know if I'll ever see these people in real life, but I look forward to seeing you in real life when yeah, we can yeah. like, like maybe have a meal or something. That would know? be great. That yeah. would be great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kamal. That was uh, Kamal Bell. Uh, thank you for your time. And thank you uh, for listening to the three questions. And we will get back at you next time. Thank you. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galit Sahayek, and engineered by Will Becton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.